The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And today on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question Do you remember being 17 when all you had to worry about was your math homework, who you wanted to take to prom, and whether the antisocial loner in your third period bio class wanted to eat you? Do you remember the very moment that you found out there was nothing hotter than a guy who wanted to murder you? especially if he plays baseball with his secluded, incestuous, forest-dwelling foster family and watches over you when you sleep. Could such a self-loathing, jealous and possessive dreamboat be for real? And could he really want plain old average and clumsy you? Well, let's find out. Because today we are skulking our way through Catherine Hardwick's 2008 deliciously absurd take on the teen angst extravaganza, Twilight. So lay back, pot a cactus, and ponder why you would ever call your lover Spider Monkey as we suck down this gloriously absurdist melodrama about being perpetually trapped in the high school psyche forever. Brought to you by the esophageal vomit of teen angst, the sparkle imp of the perverse, the glory of turquoise gel filters, the American national treasure, Mike Newton, always killing the ones you love, and taxidermy. And of course, the safe word today is consent. Anything to add, Benji? I think more than ever today, after 59 episodes, we finally, truly commit to Sparkle Motion. Fuck yeah. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Thanks! Boy! I doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion! Anja! I see you shiver. Afternoon, London. Hi, Benji. God damn it. My name is not Benji, you spider monkey. It's whatever I want it to be. (sighs) Well, speaking of whatever you want it to be, some things in life can be whatever you want them to be. Much like vampires. Yeah. Well, vampires have some governing rules, but those rules are very flexible. We will talk about some of those rules today, because what movie are we talking about today (laughs) after teasing it for so long? Yeah, yeah. We're talking about Twilight, the 2008 film directed so masterfully by the one and only Catherine Hardwick that I think, yeah, a few times throughout our time doing this, we probably have said... Twilight, the first Twilight. Oh, man, that movie's amazing. Or that movie's awesome. We will defend it with our life or our undead lives, <laughs> as the case may be. And I think, you know, there are complications to that or clarifications there. I don't know. I've been reading a lot about, like, ironic fandom recently. We are not ironically in love with this film. We love this film because this yeah. film is crazy. There are things I'm sure that we like about this film that are not intended by the filmmakers for us to enjoy the way that we do. We probably laugh at some things in this film that were not meant to be laughed at, or were they? Who knows? It's really hard to say. There are some things in this movie I'm like, this is so absurd, but this has to be intentional because this is so crazy. Who could ever take this seriously? 
Yeah, so we have been teasing defending this movie, so now it is time, I guess, to cash in on that. Put our money where our mouth is. And yeah, I agree. It is not an ironic love, but it is a very specific type of love for this movie that might not have much to do or be adjacent to the way that other people like Twilight as a phenomenon. Because I am not a fan of the books. I'm not a fan of any of the other movies. I'm a fan of this movie specifically. (laughs) And that's a special thing. Because I have seen the other movies at some point or another. And I just remember thinking to myself that they're kind of boring or they're, they're mediocre. They don't really commit to the premise like this movie does. And, We'll talk a little bit about how Catherine Hardwick came to make this movie and the circumstances she was making it under and why that makes it unique and different from the other ones. But uh, yeah, man, this first one, that was some sparkly magic that they were bringing to the table. Yeah, so let me do a lightning summary real quick for those who, for some (laughs) reason, are not aware of the Twilight phenomenon, and then we will get into that best thing, worst thing, and... Then we will be breaking this all down with annotations. See what we can as we do. Yeah, ring out of the the Twilight movie here. But lightning summary is that we have a tale as old as time of sorts, a unremarkable brunette clumsy girl who so is clumsy. new to town, and despite having nothing remarkable about her whatsoever or any interior self esteem, is going to gain the attention of the hottest boy in school. And that boy is just going to happen to be an undead, life-sucking vampire that wants to consume her body, blood, and soul. And it is going to start up a steamy, but also just really lackluster, amazingly problematic power (laughs) dynamic borderline stalker, well, actually full-on stalker, we'll get to that too, sexual infatuation. I was going to say borderline, yeah, we're over the border of the, <laughs> of this line that you are talking about. In yes, a romance in which they are both willing to die for each other, <laughs> and that only means so much on the guy's side because he's already dead. And so we're already starting out this amazing clusterfuck of power dynamics right from the beginning. And that is mostly our lightning summary. And then at some point there's gonna be a love triangle thrown in, but we don't really actually get that in this first film. And I think I like that about it too. I'll say this, the strange problematic power dynamics that we see in this movie are toned down a lot from what's in the book. And how do I know that? I read the goddamn book. Yeah, you did. Man in his 30s reads Twilight. Stop the fucking presses. Though in all reality, it's not really that bad of a read. It's pretty easy going. It's fine. It's fine. You know, I'm not an expert in literature, so I'm, I, I really have no room to critique Stephanie Meyer's prose or writing style. Uh, she's definitely big on, you know, hyperbole. A lot of strange metaphors she likes to mix in here and there. Like Bella says, I was never one to look a gift truck in the mouth or the engine for that matter. <laughs> one of the more infamous lines that I heard about and saw in this was, uh, I was crying. My treacherous tears have betrayed me. Like, yeah, yeah, they will do that. Those treacherous yeah. tears. They... Oh, the teen angst in this. The teen <laughs> angst is so great. 
I did pull a few choice quotes. I will, uh, I'll, we'll, we'll you know, sparkle in there, but uh, <laughs> sparkle in there. You see what I did there? That, yeah, that was, I, I didn't did. mean to do that. That was just it's natural. That kind of day. I am glad you read or reread. Is, was this the first time? This was the first time I'd ever read the book. Okay. I read them back a while ago. I actually remember the first time that I encountered a Twilight book because it was under very, not that bizarre of a circumstance, but it still stands out to me, is that I remember the year that I was at Comic-Con, one of the years that I was at Comic-Con, I used to work Comic-Con in San Diego, Mm -hmm. and there was this one booth, this publishing company, that was just pushing these advanced reader copies of something called Twilight on anybody who walked by. (laughs) And I think over the weekend, because I was mostly on the floor there a lot, I just kept getting copy, like advanced reader copies of this Twilight book just like shoved at me. And so in my hotel room was this growing stack of like Twilight advanced <laughs> reader copies. I'm like, what is this book? I'm like, cool title. And the cover art is fantastic for the Twilight series. There's something very graphically simple about it. It's very eye-catching. And so the marketing for this book was solid. I love that there's the little lowercase t. I like the concept and the word of Twilight and the parameters that evokes. So I was like, okay, cool. Like maybe at some point, and Harry Potter had already made the world this very primed place for young adult fantasy literature. Mm -hmm. And that was all great. I did not read that copy right away because I was doing other stuff. And then when the Twilight phenomenon started to take over about a year or two later, I'm like, wait, is that that book that I got like 14 advanced reader copies of over Comic-Con weekend? But for right now, best thing, worst thing. What is the best thing about this film? The visuals of it, which is strange to say because a film is nothing but visuals, but by God, the glorious visuals this movie gives us just make it so magical to me. The extreme color grade they do in so many scenes. The way the camera is just dancing around our characters so much and so in just so many wild ways. My God, yeah, that really makes it. It's... Kind of that and the performance that we're getting from our actors here, especially good old R. Pats, uh, Robert Pattinson, combined with Case 2, naturally. It's funny to me to think that we've talked about a Robert Pattinson movie and a Kristen Stewart movie, but now we finally get, like, the movie that they became famous for. Yeah, the origins. So, yeah, the best thing about this for me is related to that. It is the tone, mm-hmm. the mood of this There is a specific, distinct style happening here that is very hard to name exactly. I think the imp of the perverse, I will talk about that later as a metaphorical expression that we largely associate with Edgar Allan Poe, Mm -hmm. but it is a theater of the absurd meets imp of the perverse, and it is like a teen angst noir. (laughs) Everything is nordically lit in those super blue turquoise filters. Everything looks really overcast. Everything looks really wet. We'll be talking a little bit about the production on this movie and the weather conditions that they were filming in that are all very interesting to me. But it also just strikes this very distinct, awkward teen angst chord that 
most movies can't quite encapture in the same way because a lot of the teen media we have are these miniature adults or teens that have teenage emotions that are just shoved into a larger situation that they're ill-equipped to deal with, so melodrama ensues. But the teens in this, they are teenagers. Mm -hmm. You can feel their (laughs) awkward little teen angst, and there's something spectacular about that. So yeah, the teen angst noir that is happening here is fantastic. I totally feel that, and really the thing I noticed while reading the book and I began to get why this book became as popular as it was is that one thing Stephanie Meyer really had a knack for was dialing into how awkward high school can feel. Just showing that everything feels awkward no matter how nice people are to you and and it seems like everyone else is having a good time when in reality probably everybody in high school feels awkward. But yeah, I think both book and movie really get that across very well. What's the worst thing? As much as I love the absurdity in this film, there are some lines of dialogue I just groan at every single goddamn time. Even, like, I know it's coming, too. Like, oh, God, he's going to pick her up. They're going to jump out the window. They're hitting that tree. You better hold on, spider monkey. What the fuck is that, Edward? What? Yeah. I feel like most of the cringeworthy lines actually have something to do with monkeys because later it's like, he's my monkey man. And I'm like, what are all these monkey situations? I read the book. I do not recall these lines in the book. I don't remember any talk of spider monkeys or he's my monkey man. It's a metaphor about primates and the role of primate hierarchies with it. No, I, I think for some reason those just got in there and they're weird. They're so weird. There's a lot of lines of dialogue that I think are just hilarious, and some are deliberately funny, and I legit laugh at them when I see them. But then other moments, I'm like, oh, oh, oh boy. That's, ugh, yikes. (laughs) Yeah, my worst thing is that Catherine Hardwick is only going to direct this one, and so this one is the only one in the entire series that has the tone that I love so much. So I think I've seen the other ones once, Mm -hmm. maybe. I don't know if I've seen Eclipse at all, other than like some fragments of it. And I just, I can't get invested in the way that I do in this first movie, because this movie is special in a way that none of the others are going to be. Well, that's a great way to segue into a little background on this film and talk about its director, Catherine Hardwick. This was her fourth feature film. She had done a movie called 13. She did a movie called Lords of Dogtown about skateboarders in the 1970s, starring the late Heath Ledger did a movie called The Nativity Story, which is exactly that. It's The Nativity (laughs) Story. And this movie, from what I I looked up some interviews with her, and first of all, she is just so delightful to listen to because she's from South Texas, so she has this very breezy South Texas accent. When I started up in films, I just didn't know certain things. I went to this crack house to film there. I didn't understand what the crack house was. I didn't know what crack (laughs) even was about. It's like, oh, I have some cousins that sound like that in Texas. I'm like, oh, this is delightful. Catherine Hardwick, you are just wonderful. And she actually, before she was a director, got her start as as a production designer. And one of the credits I noticed that she had and that she discussed in interviews was Tank Girl. She was the production designer on Tank Girl, which movie has flaws. By God, that was a childhood favorite of mine. So, (laughs) yes, it's good to know Catherine Hardwick is just having her hands in it. And she has said that her movie 13 probably got her this job and that Summit Entertainment, who is the production company behind this movie, they were previously just a distribution house. And they said, no, we want to actually work and make our own stuff. So here's a bunch of scripts, Miss Hardwick. Have a look at those, see what you think. 
And she apparently went through a lot of scripts and just like, eh, no, no. And then came across the script for Twilight. And she says, I think there's something here. Might be something we can do with this. And she reread the book. And she says, yeah, okay, Stephanie Meyer. She's really capturing like how crazy your first love is going to feel like. Yeah, that makes sense. The script needs a little bit of work. Because I couldn't find a copy of the script that she was talking about, but according to her in this interview I listened to with Leonard Malton, she said that the ending of the script that she looked at originally had Bella becoming good at sports by the end of the movie and then riding around on a wave runner with the cool kids. It's called character growth. Yeah, yeah. Hartwick thought, you know, I don't think the redemption arc that Bella should have is she's cool now. That isn't really what this story is about. But she took that on. Summit Entertainment gave her a budget of about $30, $37 million, and she was pushing that as far as she could, and Summit would not let her up the budget at all. That they really, I what I learned a lot here is that Summit did not have much faith in this movie before it came out. They just thought, okay, it's, uh, it's based on this young adult thing, uh, some kids are going to like it, fine, whatever. And whenever she asked them, why are you only giving me this much money, they said, well... The biggest movie that is very female-centric, based on a novel by a female writer, only made about $37 million. And they were referring to the 2005 movie, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. (laughs) Apparently, to Summit Entertainment, that was the metric. That was like the high watermark of female-centric movies. Like, we have to give you what that movie made, because otherwise we feel like this is going to be a bad investment for us. She's like, well, okay, fine. And then Twilight goes on to make, on its opening weekend, like opening day, it makes its budget back. Opening weekend makes $69 million. It sets a world record for opening weekend for a female-directed film. And according to Hardwick, even after that, Summit Entertainment said, okay, $69 million, great. We're pretty sure everyone who's going to see this movie saw it opening weekend, so that's probably going to be about it. Guess what? Twilight makes $400 million. So... A success. Yeah, it was definitely a success. People loved their vampire, supernatural, or paranormal teen romance lit turned cinema. This movie, it took 44 days to film. So that also small budget compared to what it's doing on screen and a short filming time compared to what it's doing on screen. Yeah, a month and a half. That's not a lot of time to film something with a lot of complex effects like this. Yeah, because that's the other thing that we will uh, look at throughout are some of the effects in this film, almost all of which are practical. Where the CGI comes in is not actually where people would necessarily expect it to come in. Occasionally, there's CGI moving trees around, but the people are actually standing in the trees or Mm -hmm. the people are actually cable wiring up a tree. (laughs) So there are a lot of cable wire stunts in this. They do look a little awkward movement-wise, like somehow they are not happening in real life, but they are. So we'll, we'll get to that as well. But first... Let us talk about the film itself, All right, shall we? We shall. We shall open a movie with a whiz and a bang and a pow, and we're going to give you some voiceover that's just going to set you in the mood. I'd never given much thought to how I would die. Yeah, it's a kind of great way to open a movie. As I understand correctly, those are also the opening lines of the novel. The I never given much thought to how I would die. And you're like, all right. Happen to have the book hook. right here. So, uh, yes, that's, that's the first line of, well, that's the first line of the preface. 
preface, whatever. Though before that, I just now noticed looking at this, it starts with this. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2.17 Oh, snap. <laughs> I guess we should also bring up that this novel was written by Stephanie Meyer, who I believe is a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. She yes. is a Mormon. Mm -hmm. And there is some religious conservative religious stuff that's gonna happen in the novel like no premarital sex and some biblical imagery so i guess we're starting out with that genesis quote right there <laughs> in the book in the movie yes we start off with i'd never given much thought to how i would die that and yeah. we are also in a forest there's a, ch a deer being chased by Something? There's a deer grazing in the woods. Oh. I actually love this opening because I also <laughs> just recently watched the Kingdom movie or special episode that just came out. Kingdom is a Korean drama, and I was watching this oh, okay. Kingdom special episode for the K-Bay podcast. Yay, they had me on for that and love them over there. And uh, the hilarious thing is it opens almost exactly the same. And I was like, oh my God, this is two movies that I just watched <laughs> in a row that starts out with this moody forest and a deer just grazing on foliage in the forest with the moody Pacific Northwest, or in the kingdom's case, like Korean lighting happening in the forest. And all of a sudden, the deer, it starts running because it's being chased. Because predator-prey metaphors, you know, wherever you want to really get across this idea of a predator-prey narrative, you start with that deer in a woods. And that's apparently become a universal symbol from Twilight to Korean Netflix dramas. And then to Twilight, out of nowhere, far. this vampire is just going to tackle we don't know it's a vampire well i mean we do because like anybody watching this movie is probably aware of the twilight phenomenon but somebody who looks kind of like robert pattinson is just gonna sideline <laughs> tackle this deer as it's jumping over okay, a log someone that looks like robert pattinson london no one looks like robert pattinson well this is one of the few cgi moments actually <laughs> is they composited from of course yeah robert pattinson templates but sure, they composited sure. him in freeze frame and just jumped him at this deer in a composite plate situation apparently this deer i learned from the commentary because i did watch this oh, commentary good, good. with Catherine hardwick robert pattinson and Kristen stewart really and i learned from that that this is also three different deer <laughs> in this opening scene <laughs> how many deer they... had to die to make this opening well, scene happen okay so apparently one no deers died on set but they started out using what was apparently a quote-unquote famous rescue deer and I don't know what made this deer famous. It was just <laughs> how it was said in this commentary. It was that this one was a famous deer at the rescue center, but then the deer passed away before they were able to do the rest of the shoots that they wanted. It didn't seem like it died on the set. Just, you know, I don't know what killed it. But uh, they had to pull together two other deer, which were not as film ready. Because <laughs> deer do not want to be on camera. They're very shy. They're very skittish. But yeah, this is not a CGI deer. This is a real deer running through the woods. Another thing that's going to be pretty consistent throughout this, which is fun and weird and disjarring all at the same time, is that Hardwick really wanted to use a lot of handheld camera work to really give it that feel of reality mm -hmm. and 
that new wave of documentary style filmmaking, which was very popularly embracing the handheld camera to kind of get up and personal. I think 13 used a lot of handheld stuff as well. Yeah, there's a lot of handheld, almost documentary style uh, camera work in 13. And she brings a bit of that here, too. Not yeah, and it's going to be very but... shaky in this opening. Mm-hmm. You can feel the fact that this is not on a tracker, this is not on a steady cam. We'll get some steady cam shots in this, but mostly we're just like free ball in this narrative. And as Robert Pattinson, CGI Robert Pattinson, just collides with this deer in a tackle, the camera pans up to the sky. It's like lens flare, <laughs> the sunlight. There's just so much oh. lens flare happening. We're opening this narrative about vampires underneath the lens flared sun yeah Yeah. this is not going to be your average vampire movie in the dark and we're about to meet not your average girl from phoenix because we go down to phoenix and we meet the palest goddamn woman to ever live in phoenix kristen stewart well she might not be your most average girl from phoenix but she is like the world's most average girl right like that is her (laughs) role is that she is supposed to be as unremarkable and as close to a surrogate step-in for the intended audience as possible, which is, of course, a problematic thing to say because she is just a pale brunette white girl. So that's actually a very specific demographic. But this trend of having the unremarkable mediocrely attractive as Bella sees herself in the novel. Of course, like everybody else exterior to her thinks she's the most gorgeous thing ever. This idea of the unremarkable woman gaining the love of a remarkable man is something that is a centuries old trope. It is a very popular type of romance thing and it because it theoretically resonates with an audience that wants to transpose themselves onto this unremarkable thing. Yeah, I have never related to this because I do not identify as unremarkable because I am an exceptional narcissist, so I do not relate to this Bella chick at all, but it's fine. One of the more infamous things I heard about the book before going into it was that, yeah, Bella is meant to be this audience surrogate. And having read the book, I can tell you about the only descriptions that we get of Bella is that... She has brown hair, her hair smells of strawberries, and she's very clumsy. The thing that I kind of remember that drove me nuts, because I have, and it's just my own personal prejudice, is that I don't tend to like many narratives written in the first person. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I don't ever like first person prose. It can be done really well, but it has to be a certain level for me to be able to embrace first person prose. And the thing I kind of vaguely remember about Twilight, I did not reread it right before this because I knew you had that covered, man. See, look at that, instilling some trust in you for the first time ever. (laughs) But I kind of remember the way that she would describe herself in the first person was kind of ridiculous to me, where it's like, I raised my slender neck to the light. And I'm like, who describes themselves that way? That's not a neutral (laughs) word. Why would that be your interior dialogue? Yeah, so it was like a way of like fetishizing her to the audience. But at the same time, it just seemed really weird that this clumsy, unremarkable, low self-esteem girl would be describing herself with such reverent prose. And that was a strange juxtaposition to me that I found hilarious. Neither here nor there. Neither here nor there. Where is there? Well, there is Phoenix, but we're not going to be in Phoenix for very long because our hero, Bella, played by Kristen Stewart, the case do, she has decided that she is going to move away from her 
home in Phoenix because her mother. She's got to go traveling with her boyfriend, who apparently is a baseball player. Whatever, we don't it's care. It's like a minor league. No, it is kind of hilarious. So her mom has to go on the road because she's remarried to a minor league baseball player. And so they need to be constantly on the road. I don't know much about the lives of minor league baseball players, but this just always seemed hilarious to me. But somehow she has to completely uproot her life for minor league baseball. <laughs> like Not even major league. It's just, isn't that like a hobby at that point? I don't know. Well, you're paid to be in the minor leagues, but the minor leagues are basically just a constant tryout. For the major leagues. Though I have heard stories of guys who play in the minor leagues for a very long time. They don't make major league money, but they make some money. All right, good for them. So Bella is sitting there, or standing there rather, underneath this lens flare. With her cactus. Clutching this cactus. And it's the beginning of so many great decisions (laughs) that she's just awkwardly holding this potted cactus. Because she really wants to take a piece of her home with her when she moves up north to be with her father. And so this is the little last remnant of home that she has in this little potted cactus plant. And as we get this wide shot of where the car is pulling out of, it's an amazingly desolate cul-de-sac somewhere in Phoenix, Arizona. There are two houses and then just a bunch of cactus desert. Yeah. It's kind of great. I think they actually filmed this in Santa Clarita. I looked that up. So also while they begin to drive away, the music starts filtering in, the extra diegetic music that is going to happen throughout this movie, the first one being The Black Ghost's Full Moon Rises. Subtle. It is just really an excellent choice. It like does somehow fit the mood of this film, and the music is going to be really great for capturing certain moods throughout this. And that's because Alexandra Pitsavas was the music supervisor of this. And that makes me so happy because I am a huge fan of her. What else has she done? So she is a music supervisor in the industry. She has done a lot of music for both television and films. But the thing that I associate her strongest with, and a lot of people do, is that she was the music supervisor on The O.C. She tends to work with Josh Schwartz a lot. So she is responsible for that. What you say? Yeah, that we actually used on the Spree episode. Yes, Yes, she is responsible for that. (laughs) Okay, full circle, full circle. Yes, so she is responsible for the OC music supervision, which, oh man, I could go on at length about. I will not hear, but I will say that her involvement in the OC actually had a lot of really interesting fundamental components of the takeoff of the early 2000s indie music scene. So she was very instrumental in that, as was that show in a weird way. Mm. But say what you will about the teen angst of The O.C., because it was actually not a show that I watched as a teenager. I got much more involved with it in television studies later on, looking at just the influence and impact that had on jumpstarting a lot of indie music bands giving them a platform to perform on that show and then getting record deals so things like the killers and death cab for cutie are very vocal in attributing the oc to them getting record like larger record deals which is kind of cool and then also gossip girl then and the television series chuck because those are all josh shorts shows as well so she tends to work with him a lot so she's really great at tapping into the certain contemporary music ethos of young adults at a given period of time and 
picking songs that haven't quite come out yet and knowing which ones are going to resonate really well with mm -hmm. the youth. Um, and so that's a really cool talent. And this soundtrack for Twilight did go on to become the best-selling theatrical movie soundtrack in the United States. The Chicago soundtrack had previously held that record ah. that came out in 2002. So there you go. This soundtrack did really, really well, but I still really like this album. There's a lot of great stuff on it. So I'll point out some of that music. But yeah, Alexandra. Oh, Alexandra. And that music is playing as Bella and her father, Charlie, drive into Forks, Washington, population 3,120 people. It's a small little town. Yeah, and that actually was the accurate census of the population in 2008 at the time that this movie came out. Forks is a real place. It is in Washington. The census population in 2000 was 3,120 people. So they looked that census up. In 2010, I suppose that would jump a little bit to 3,558. And then the 2018 census is 3,862. So there's only about 700 more people that moved there in the last 10 years. So the <laughs> oh. Twilight phenomenon did not necessarily induce a mass migration to move to Forks, Washington. This is possibly because there's not a whole lot going on in Forks. It's a former timber and fish Fishiery town mm -hmm. that... Fishiery, that okay, that's an industry. Fishiery, yes. Wow. But now that uh, the timber industry is dying down a little bit, it mostly relies on... I think that's there's two local correctional facilities that are nearby, so it's mostly a prison correctional facility job town oh, wow. at this point. <laughs> and yeah. so, yeah, not, not super vampire sexy, necessarily. <laughs> It has two newspapers that serve it. One is for the greater regional area. But one little fun trivia fact that I liked about it is that the weekly Forks Forum that comes out as like specifically the Forks paper is the farthest west newspaper in the United States. That's also because Forks itself is going to be the furthest western zip code in the United States. Well, today I learned. That's going to come in handy on bar trivia nights. Yeah. It is named, so Forks gets its name off of the nearby rivers. There's a couple of rivers that run together and fork oh, where Forks is. I see, so I see that. That's where that comes from. The fork phenomenon, I guess. Nobody's been mass migrating to Forks, but people do go there tourism-wise to visit the birthplace of the Edward-Bella relationship. Ah, I see. And so there is a Twilight Day. It started out as a Stephanie Meyer Day, is what it was called, on September 13th, because that is the day before the fictional Bella's birthday. I don't know why they didn't just do it on September 14th then, but for some huh. reason, they picked September 13th. <laughs> and now they call it the Forever Twilight in Forks Festival, and it lasts a week starting on you know the week of September 13th. Wow, week-long festival. All right. Yeah, week-long festival that includes a movie marathon, a blood drive, oh. and dance lessons. <laughs> oh, a blood drive. Yeah. Oh. Give him back to the community. Oh. Super cute. Because <laughs> vampires. Cute. Uh, I mean, also good to have, it's good to have blood drives, obviously. If you can, donate blood, folks. It's a good thing. But, <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, Bella and her father drive into Forks. And another thing I like about this movie and the book in terms of showing us the awkward teenage life is that 
Bella and her father, they're awkward around each other. They really don't know how to talk to each other. Bella's father, Charlie, he's not a bad guy or anything. He just doesn't really know how to communicate with a teenage girl, but he still tries to make things right. I absolutely adore this father-daughter representation. Yeah. It's so sad on some level, but also, like, he's trying so hard. Like, you can kind of tell that he's missed having his daughter around, but he doesn't know how to interact with her. And so he's completely tried to make her room as teenage girl-friendly as possible. He had the saleswoman pick out a comforter set for her that's purple, because he's like, purple's your favorite color, right? Because probably maybe five years ago, this was her favorite color. And so now she's like, yeah, purple's cool. He apparently has told people leading up to this, Bella's coming, Bella's coming to live with him, and he's excited about it, but he doesn't want to like show her that. On the walls of her room, there's a little billboard where a lot of her old art as a child is like displayed, so he's kept that. He's just trying to cling to any memory or remnant of a relationship he has with her. Later on in the movie, they're going to go to this diner, and he's like, your favorite's cobbler, right? So he has these ingrained memories, and I just feel so bad for him. It like hits this chord. <laughs> There's something that's just so understandably human about this interaction throughout the entire thing. And then the awkwardness is going to continue. It's going to continue so hard. First with the car truck gifting scene. Yes, we find out that her father has bought an old truck for Bella, and Bella is legit hyped for this. We meet Jacob who actually doesn't show up until much later in the book. Jacob isn't in the first book all that much. He has like two scenes. But I think by the time that this movie was coming out, we were already on book three where Jacob had become much more prominent. So I think mm -hmm. the filmmakers decide, let's go ahead and just front load the Jacob in this movie. It's all yeah, good. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And we also meet Jacob's father, Billy. Now, Jacob and Bella, they're going to have some sort of conversation, but I, I never hear what they're saying because I'm just transfixed because Billy... And Charlie, Bella's dad, are fighting in a weird way in the background. They're play fighting. They're just fake throwing punches at each other. And they're these two grown men. It is yet another decision in the theater of the absurd. Because you're like, you are two adult grown men. Like, why are you play boxing in the background while your two kids have this conversation in the foreground about hey, do you remember me? We used to be friends as kids, and we used to make mud pies together. And Bella's like, yeah, I remember you. And then they get into this truck. Jacob shows her how to double clutch. Oh, yeah, you got to double clutch, you know, not not granny shifting, you know. Not granny shifting, but maybe she does also have to granny shift, double clutching and granny shift in this car. <laughs> Fast and the Furious Yo. callback. Don't worry about it. And... <laughs> Episode 30, just saying, go back, rewatch. She's going to go times. to school, and Jacob is not going to go to school with her because he goes to school on the res, on the reservation, because he is part of the Quayute tribe, mm -hmm. which I'm not quite pronouncing right. For some reason, I can't make my mouth fully say uh, Quayute. Mm -hmm. So yeah, take that with a grain of salt. Just look it up, folks. I keep feeling like I'm saying Quayute because I'm so used to saying Quayute that like I want to kind of do the Que there, but it's like yeah. a Quay. Anyway, whatever. so then we get a series of epic teen awkward scenes. And these are some of my favorite things, like in the entire movie, is the pure teen melodrama. It's very appropriate because it's not like the kids at this school are bullies. They're just way too forward with Bella. And Bella definitely has some introvert vibes throughout, well, 
the entire movie, definitely. But here you definitely get that. Like, we meet Eric, who is just hyped. She's like, hey, you're Isabella Swan. It's all the big news. I'm going to write a newspaper feature about you arriving. She's like, uh, no, please do not do that. That is way more attention than I want. She's like, well, if you need anything else, you know, uh, shoulder to cry on, I'm, I'm here for you. And he lists a bunch of things, and it ends with a shoulder to cry on. And I'm like, Eric, you're awesome. You got some swag. She's like, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'd rather cry in the bathroom alone or whatever she says in response. And so, yeah, he's just the guy that he's like, the one that's super enthusiastic, right? You can tell that he probably has run for class president a bunch. Mm-hmm. He's in charge of the school newspaper, probably editor of the yearbook, right? Like he just does all of the things, you know? He's just super involved and he's super friendly on that level. He just wants to get in there first with Isabella. And then hard cut to volleyball <laughs> gym class. And there's something amazing about the super hard cut we get here because the, she's about to walk into the school and then volleyball and it's jarring enough that it already puts you into that awkward place of just somehow suddenly being in the middle of a volleyball game everybody around her they're they're doing fine with the volleyball she clearly is not into it the volleyball comes her way she tries to hit it and it just veers off course and it smacks this dude on the back of the head and we meet mike and mike is the fucking best (laughs) So she's going to hit this Mike guy on the head and then go over to him to apologize. And we're going to get this amazingly awkward interaction between him, Kristen Stewart, and Anna Kendrick. In her third movie ever. Playing Jessica, who's going to come in. And she has a thing for Mike. And so she just beelines right towards the situation to try to insert herself because there's like a new girl talking to the guy she has a crush on and we get the first in just this like teen angst fest stuff whoa i'm sorry i told them not to let me play no no no, that's that's you're uh isabella right just bella yeah hey i'm uh i'm mike newton oh nice to meet you yeah She's got a great spike, huh? Yes. I'm Jessica, by the way. Hey, you're from Arizona, right? Yeah. Are people from Arizona supposed to be, like, really tan? Yeah. Maybe that's why they kicked me out. <laughs> <laughs> you're good. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> that's so funny. Like, isn't, isn't she funny? One note here with the volleyball that came from some of the special features was that, first of all, Mike Newton, he's just a treasure because he (laughs) is just such a teenager. Like, he just nails this perfectly average teenage guy. Like, when he first gets hit, he turns around, he looks mad, and then he sees that it's Bella that sent the ball at him, and his face just shifts. He's like, hey, what the? Oh, hi. Hey, what's going on? (laughs) Apparently the hardest thing for him during this movie, acting-wise, was trying to stay relaxed before getting hit by the volleyball because they did this take multiple, multiple times to try to just get the right, like, hit behind the head Uh. angle. And he's like, it didn't hurt because it was a volleyball, but, like, you're standing there and you know you're about to get hit (laughs) by a volleyball again and again. And so to try to relax and keep relaxed right before the volleyball hits you was apparently a super challenging exercise. (laughs) And so they have these special features where it does show the behind the scenes. It's just one of the guys on the set that's repeatedly trying to, like, hit this volleyball (laughs) at him. (laughs) 
again and again so that they can cut it together oh, later. Buddy. So it's, it's fun. Yeah. And then we have this interaction. So Mike is smitten. Eric has met her and is smitten. Also, I just like this fact that in this dialogue exchange, Bella is clearly not funny, right? right? Where she's like, I guess that's why they kicked me out. And Mike finds her hilarious because he finds her hot. And Anna is just trying to roll with it. Like, yeah, she's so funny. Isn't she so funny? And she is ready to slice a bitch. (laughs) Like, (laughs) her face is doing all the work and it's amazing. And then the awkwardness continues into the lunch hour where suddenly they're all around the table at lunch. People are still all about Bella, where Eric sidles in, like, I see you've met my homegirl, Bella. And Mike's like, oh, you're homegirl. Some other random dude comes up and kisses her on the cheek. He's like, or mine, and runs off or whatever. Fuck that guy. Yeah, it's like, whoa. Mike runs off after that guy. And so Anna Kendrick slash Jackessica contextualizes, wow, it's like the first grade all over again, and you're the shiny new toy. Because I think that does a better job of contextualizing than I remember it being in the book where everybody's just inexplicably totally falling over the mystical aura of Bella's unremarkableness the where shiny... like here it does just seem like yeah. yeah we haven't had a lot of new stimulation in a while there's so. there's that I mean it's definitely the book kind of goes on to how you know Bella realizes how crazy this is going to be she's getting into a new school in March it emphasizes that there are so few kids at this high school compared to her old school so she's going to stand out like a sore thumb it's kind of, it's a little bit there too. This is much more direct and to the point. Like you are the shiny new mm-hmm. toy. Everyone's obsessed with you right now. Yeah. Makes sense. And then we get another great Eric line though because Angela comes to take a picture of Bella for the newspaper and explains, sorry, I just needed a candid shot for the exposé or whatever. And Eric's like, the future is dead, Angela. Don't bring it up again. And she was like, the fuck? <laughs> like, Jesus, man, that was like, your bro. idea. Fuck. <laughs> but Eric's trying to be all chivalrous, like, don't worry, Bella, I got your back, you know? Like, we, we've had this discussion, and oh my god, it's teen politics at work. So good. Are there vampires yet? There are about to be. So now, all of a sudden, <laughs> we get... The Collins. <laughs> and oh my god, do we get the Collins? So somehow, time begins to slow okay like the frame rate begins to slow down the cullen the vampires who have the power to walk in slow motion enter the cafeteria one by well two by two and then one each get their little moment as jessica slash anna kendrick explains to us who these people are because they have this presence as they enter and bella wants to know who are they and jessica's like oh those are the cullens these weird i want to say Gap slash Amber Crombie Fitch looking models over here who are somehow paler than everyone else at the school who's, they're all already really pale. And the thing is, is that there are so many film techniques that one can use to film an entrance scene in a way that makes something look hyper attractive. This is a technique that's used a lot in that Almost like that Charlie's Angels Baywatch kind of way of we're going to slow this down and soft light it a little bit. A little breeze in the, the hair as it blows, you know, that sort of thing. That glow. Get some music that's kind of like, oh, yeah, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, to aid that sexual charge that's happening. And for whatever reason, 
all the best reasons, I like to think, Hardwick is not going to do a single one of those. <laughs> She's actually going to do the opposite. And that is a fascinating decision because other than it being a slowed down film rate, we don't actually go into slow motion exactly. We just slow the frame rate a little bit so that it's going slower, but not enough to fully call it like full on slow-mo. And then instead of soft lighting with a glow, they're going to put these motherfuckers under fluorescent lights, which notoriously is the worst you can do for anyone, right? Like everyone looks the worst under fluorescent lights. But, you know, vampires. Yeah, for the styling choices. Well, one of those things is it is going to make them look washed out and sallow. Mm. And that is going to aid the vampire aesthetic, but it's not doing the hypersexuality any favors. And then on top of that, the hair color choices that they use for their vampires both delight and frustrate me at the same time. <laughs> because one thing we might notice if we break down all of the different casting choices is that we have a collection within these vampires of blondes and brunettes. And whatever the natural hair color is of the actor playing that vampire, they are going to dye their hair or wig them in the opposite hair color. Oh, okay. So we've got Nikki Reed, who is brunette by, you know, birth and trade, and they give her this goldish, brassy, blonde hair. Mm -hmm. That's Rosalie, right? That's Rosalie, yes. The guy who is playing Emmett, her, her fake guy. foster brother slash lover. We'll get to that. Is a natural blonde. Okay. And they are going to dye his hair a very dark brown kind of black. <laughs> they put Alice, who actually is a brunette, kind of like a more red auburn brunette, mm-hmm. into this very dark, almost black hair. And then Jasper, who is oh, Jasper. brunette, they bleach his hair out as well to make him a golden blonde. Mm-hmm. And they're going to do this with the parents as well. Carlisle is a natural brunette. They're oh, going to bleach okay. hair, his hair out blonde. And what becomes a fascinating result of this is so if you've ever tried to figure out what hair color is right for me, right? You can take a little what hair color is right for me quiz. And there's this idea that there are warm skin tones and there are cool skin tones and and neutral sometimes and you want to kind of pay attention to that when you choose a warm or a cool tone hair color even if you're going blonde or if you're going darker but there are hair colors that just do not look good with certain underlying skin tones Mm -hmm. like what it's going to do is it's going to wash you out or it's going to make you look yellow or it's going to make you look red or it's going to make you look sallow right like there are different things that if you put the wrong hair color on someone it's going to have that effect. And it's there's just some really poor choices out there. And they are deliberately putting all of their vampires in hair colors that are not the right hair color for them. Like, across the board. Not even just, like, not their natural color, but they are choosing the colors that are going to totally wash them out and make them look a little yellow. And that is having this effect where, yeah, it makes them look paler throughout the movie. It makes the makeup jobs person easier because on camera, their skin tone is just not going to look quite right. Their hair is going to look kind of brassy. They're going to look kind of greenish yellow under these fluorescent lights. But it also is going to make them look way less attractive than these actors do in real life. And that is fascinating, too, because you're supposed to have these colons, which are these hyper attractive, like too good to be human attraction pool. And you're like, wow, these actors as human beings outside of the Twilight franchise 
way more attractive <laughs> than they are in this series. And yeah, fascinating, absurdist decision there where I'm like, why in the world did you put those brassy highlights okay. on his face? But they they didn't do this reverse hair color thing with, with Robert Pattinson, did they? Because he comes in next. He has brunette hair and he just has brunette hair in real life, doesn't he? He does. They are giving him a little bit of a wash that is making his hair a little bit more copper. And that too is like bringing out kind of the green tones in his skin. But yeah, he is the closest to his natural hair color. But they do copper him up a little bit to give him a slightly more sallow appearance. But it's not as bad. And I don't know if it's the hair color, but I'll just call him R-Pats from now on Mm because that's easier to say than Robert Pattinson over and over again. R-Pats... He's got some eyebrows on him, but I feel like they must have done something to his eyebrows. Oh, they plucked him. Yeah, they actually talk about that in the commentary, like how much they had to tame and pluck his eyebrows into (laughs) some sort of cultivated thing. I guess he also shaved a little bit of his hairline to create more of a slight widow's peak for his bouffant that he's (laughs) rocking in this. And he is definitely also wearing some matte lipstick throughout the entire thing. Now, as the family is coming in, we're getting a lot of like gossip from Jessica, Anna Kendrick's character, that she says, Oh yeah, they're uh, they live together with Dr. Cullen, but they're like together. Oh come on, it's not weird. No, they're like foster kids, and they're like together. It's kind of weird. She's like, I'm not even sure if that's like legal, but they totally live together, and they're like together, together. So weird, huh? So the the law of foster kids fucking. I looked this up. Yep, just another thing that's gonna really mess with our search <laughs> histories, folks. On my search history, I was like, can foster kids fuck? And I was like, oh god. Um, now does on my search index history now. Did not incognito that search. Not at all. I was like, just growing listing. Fine. Oh, again, VPN companies sponsor us because by God, we can make use out of you. You know. <laughs> yeah. Right. So here's the deal. In general, yeah, it is technically in most states generally frowned upon, and it's not illegal, but it's also not allowed or permissible for foster kids that are placed in the same household to start up a romantic or sexual relationship. Generally, social workers, if they know about that, will rehome one of them. So there's, and that's not all states, but it's some of them. And mm-hmm. it's very ambiguous wording. There was, it was a little bit harder to find like the very specific rules and regulations on that. What was way easier to find were the incest laws in Washington state. So I pulled those. Because, like, one of the things is, is it is implied here that they're not just foster kids. They've been adopted by Carlisle and Esme. So adoption is a different situation even than foster kids. Like, foster kids, it's more of a social welfare looking out for these kids. Different situation. So what we're actually talking about is adopted kids. Can adopted kids fuck each other? (sighs) Technically, the law is mostly with marriage. So... You cannot marry if you are legally related in either birth or adoption capacity. Hmm. You can, however. I did find precedent where some adopted siblings had gotten their adoption revoked and reversed in order to marry each other. Fair enough. So that's a possibility out there for you. But the criminal charge of incest in Washington state or in the first degree is classified as a class B felony. Incest is defined in Washington state as direct verbiage here, 
a person is guilty of incest in the first degree if he or she engages in sexual intercourse with a person whom he or she knows to be related to him or her, either legitimately or illegitimately, as an ancestor, descendant, brother, or sister of either the whole or the half-blood. So, my question is, do vampires count as blood relatives? Because I could see a case for that here, right? Because they've drained them of their original blood and kind of infected a venomous yeah. situation into their blood, giving them some of their blood. So I could see at least a half-blood argument here for the incest orientation Well, for some of them, of because as we find out later on, Jasper and Alice, they were not made by Carlisle that we'll meet later on. Edward was made by Carlisle as was kind of mother of the group, as was Rosalie and Emmett. So Emmett and Rosalie, I'm pretty sure, would be the most incest-y of the, uh, of the crew there, but not so much Jasper and Alice because they were made by someone else. What's even more fun here is that like, there's really no reason that these guys have to pretend to be related. <laughs> so it almost is like they're calling more attention to themselves by enrolling in a high school as like a foster family slash adopted family that are all fucking each other. Like that, I don't know. If you want to keep a low profile, I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. But the Cullens do the Cullens. The more and more I watch this, I just think to myself, why are you guys even going to high school? They kind of give a reason for it later on. Like the whole, oh, if we start off as kids in a new town, we can stick around for longer. Uh, You know, I think you're just drawing more attention to yourself than you want to. Yeah, it's like the torches of the damned. You know, that's the true horror core of this narrative is just having to re-enroll in high school over and over and over again for eternity because you were turned at 16 through 18. And so the government <laughs> regulates you got to be in school. But I'm like, homeschooling's a thing. Just yeah. apply to homeschool them and keep all of their old tests so that you can keep resubmitting to the Board of Education and you're fine. Because then they'd be the creepy homeschool kids in the woods. But they're already the creepy incest foster family in the woods. So like, whatever. Uh, well, after the creepy vampire incest couples sit down edward comes in bell is immediately intrigued because he's the one different looking person who apparently does not already have an incest mate and wants to know about him like what's this guy's deal jessica's like oh you know he's uh you know this is the really hot one but no one here is good enough for him already we're setting up right away that there's no one else in the school that is good enough for edward yeah yeah Edward's just so hot, and yet, like, nobody ever talks to him, which is also kind of fun. We'll get into that later, how, like, Edward has no friends, and he's super antisocial. So strange, yes, but he's already given Bella the eye, kind of glancing over at her, and he looks a little confused by her. Already, we're setting up some stuff. Next scene, we're going to get into a science classroom, where... The best scene! Yes, this is... This is just... There's so many things about this scene that I, I love so much. Bella walks in... And walks in front of a fan, establishing that a breeze is behind Bella. And we cut to Edward sitting at the desk. We even have some paper on the desk to visually give us that the breeze has hit him. And our pats just, I don't even know how to classify this. I feel like Catherine Hardwick must have gone up to him prior and said, Okay, Robert, what's going to happen here? You're going to have a combination of nausea, but also your orgasmin. From the depths of his esophageal soul, he gag reflexes and tries to hold in the vomit 
of teen angst that he is experiencing. <laughs> and it is so much. And it's like, Especially oh, since he's got, like, all of these taxidermied animals oh. behind him at the same time. There's, like, this taxidermied bird with this wide wingspan and an armadillo, which apparently in the commentary, the armadillo is placed there by Hardwick because armadillos are, are from her hometown representation. Oh, right on. So there's this random armadillo taxidermied in the Northwest in the science class. But, yeah, the reaction of just complete repulsion and angst and just awkwardness mm -hmm. that's all just coming together here. And then to cap it off, Bella, she sees this reaction and she kind of tries to subtly, but there is no subtle way to do this, like sniff her own hair yeah. to see, like, do I really <laughs> smell that bad? Which is such an amazing little teen, awkward high school thing of, oh my God, do I smell bad? Can people smell me? Am I yeah. going to be a social outcast? That is the moment in the book where Bella sniffs her hair and just says, no, normal smell of strawberries. So that's, again, one of the very few descriptors we get of Bella. Her hair smells like strawberries. And we get this quick montage of class where Edward is just like staring at Bella, freaking the hell out. She immediately clocks how beautiful Edward is. And that's a big thing in the book. I think that everyone knows the book will not shut up about how hot Edward is. For all the lack of details we get about Bella, we get so much detail about <laughs> Edward, about how perfect his face is, how beautiful his lips are, how straight his teeth are, how great his hair is, how muscly he is, over and over and over again. So you'll get in this scene, you get these bits where Bella says, I could see his perfectly white skin was being pulled even tighter over his knuckles as he seemed to clench onto the table with all of his might, which must have been ferocious, or something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing, of course, yeah. but that's what's going on here is that apparently Edward is just like clenching the table, like, Ugh, oh God. He can't handle her presence. He can't bear it. And in the midst of this montage for this class, we get this shot of Edward sitting down and that owl, that taxidermy owl is right behind him and we get wings coming out of his shoulders. I don't know what that represents. Is Edward an angel? He's a fallen angel, man. I <laughs> well, there are actually a lot of folklore versions of vampires in which they are descendants in some way of fallen angels and have Luciferian ties. So there is a little bit of a representation with fallen angels and vampirism and those inversions of the Christian Jesus figure as this antithesis antithesis, right, with crucifixes being some sort of ward or holy water being some sort of ward. But I think what's actually happening here is just that there's this taxidermied owl in the background and Catherine Hardwick was like, this is a way to make this shot more visually interesting is to have these wings coming out because what you can gather, just even watching the movie, but then also reaffirmed by the commentary, is how much she as a director is constantly thinking of what is the best ways to make this scene as visually interesting as possible. Yeah. What choices can we make to just make this cool and either weird or engaging or a little bit more colorful? And it is one of the things that makes this movie so tonally and stylistically great is that every shot is just very interesting and in it's framing in its mise-en-scene, right, what's just stuffed inside of it, and its coloring, like, it's all just great. And so, yeah, this is just an amazingly melodramatic shot of him lurking over a science table, trying not to vomit up his teen angst as wings sprout from his shoulder blades. 
In the background, we've got the teacher who's talking about the daily task, and I kind of love this too. It's a little bit too on point, but it's also great because it's just very subtle in the background, is that today they're going to be talking about worms. Yes, folks, zombie worms. They just won't die. <laughs> and it's oh, like, oh my God, subtle. hashtag metaphors, subtle, not subtle. Yeah. Also, like this vamp shit is science is basically <laughs> what it's saying because it's like, hey, here is a creature that we are studying in science class that regenerates, that just won't seem to die even when you cut it in half. The so there's thing. precedent for this in the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. What we're going to learn with Edward later is that if we saw Edward in half, he's going to be fine. <laughs> Got to burn the pieces as we just won't hear die. over and over like, again later know? on. Cut them up so, and burn yeah, the pieces. So, yeah, shit is science. <laughs> just supported. We are watching a scientific documentary here unfold in front of us. Yes. Edward gets the fuck out of the class as soon as he can, tries to change classes, but he can't. Not even as soon as he can. Like, he doesn't even wait for class to be over. He's just like, I got to leave. And he just bolts. Cut to the scene, and I just kind of love this because it's just how angsty Edward is. Is He's trying to switch classes because he doesn't want to be in that class anymore. And Bella comes in and overhears him. And the receptionist is just like, I'm sorry, there's nothing else available. You're just going to have to stay in biology. And in total bitch boy, teen angst fashion, he's like, fine, I'll just have to endure it. <laughs> and then he storms it. out. <clears throat> oh my God, this Victorian language. I just have to endure it. And <laughs> he's just such a little angst ball. So amazingly ridiculous. And Bella's like, fine, fuck you too, bro. Uh, also, I feel like we have to say something we kept saying a lot in Excess Baggage is that reminder of, by the way, this is a love story. Oh, These yeah, two are going to yeah. fall in love. <laughs> she wants to talk to him and confront him about his strange behavior at school, but He's nowhere to be found, and she just has to settle for Tyler throwing licorice at her from his van. Yeah, so this also came up in the commentary, was that apparently there was this large container of licorice in this van that was tempting, and so all of the actors started eating it in one of the scenes, and then it just became this this thing, this institution, that licorice just slowly became a background staple of this entire movie, because this giant thing of licorice in this van and that they just kept eating it. You can't give teenagers a giant thing of licorice and expect them to not eat it. Come on. Yeah, which is kind of fun. It is this like weird thing that just there's licorice in a lot of scenes in this movie. And they came by that honest. There's a scene at a factory where a guy is is hunted by something. Something menacing is is coming for him. Turns out it's vampires. It's it's just other vampires. It's always vampires. Yeah. yeah. And one thing the movie does very well in adapting from the book is getting these vampires in much earlier. Like I said, we don't see Jacob until much later in the book. The vampires, these other vampires, we don't see them until the baseball game in the book. We don't even mention them. There's no talk of any other vampires around. It is really just E and B. That's really just the book is those two. Well, I guess that would make sense in the book, right? Because the book is all from Bella's perspective. So there's not really a reason for her to know the outside goings on of these rebel vampires. Well, after a little bit later in the movie, we do get that scene where Bella's dad says, I got to go check this out. Some guy was killed by some weird animal. So she is hearing about these Mm -hmm. strange attacks. But even that is not in the the book. Okay, she's just too self-centered. She's too much of a teenager to notice the (laughs) untimely death of others in the community because Edward's hot and he's in her science class. and Uh, That's what she cares about. Yeah. And she also is that same that same 
same scene where she goes to her truck uh, and her dad tells her about the animal attack, she's falling down. And that is something in the book I just thought to myself, okay, Stephanie Meyer, I get it. Bella is clumsy. Because the book will not shut up about how Bella cannot walk in a straight line for more than 10 feet without <laughs> tripping over her own leg. She function as a human being. Like, how has she stayed upright all this time? I mean, it really, it seems like that is the excuse Edward is always taking. It's like, I have to watch over you. You're too clumsy. Yeah, you just can't walk down your driveway without almost breaking your coccyx. What are you going to do? <laughs> so, first of all, with this cutaway scene to the rebel vampires... Super cool footage that we get here. Another example of just how this film has its own style, makes itself very visually interesting, is that the shot comes from the grate below. So the camera is directly focused upwards, and we get the under slits of the grate and the shadow of the attack above. It's an incredibly cool shot. Mm -hmm. And then some different kind of shadowy side shots and the like. So just making this movie interesting adds to that noir component where there's something darker going on around this town in the typical noir fashion that is being slightly withheld from us and our protagonist. Just cool style all around. The falling, uh, yeah, Kristen Stewart's going to fall a whole bunch. Bella's going to fall a whole bunch. She gets into this truck. And then she goes into the classroom, and it's raining. We get another really cool insert shot of just stylistically some worker boots walking through the mud and the rain puddles. It's just very atmospheric. It's not a necessary shot, but it is to create the style of this movie. The cutaways are so interesting. You don't need it, but I like that it's there. You do. It's like Mandy's purple proseness, right? (laughs) Like, you don't need it, but you do in order for it to work. And this is the noir cutaways that are just going to create a certain moody atmosphere. The cutaway shot's beautiful. Bella gets into class, and has to uh, have a very awkward moment with Eric that thankfully is kind of broken up by Mike. Um, I was wondering, did you have a, a, a date to... What's up, Arizona, huh? Uh, Are you liking the rain, girl? <laughs> so this is my favorite line in the entire movie. For some reason, this is like one of those movie quotes that has just gotten stuck in my head. Arizona, how you liking the rain, girl? Because it is just so bizarre. And he's like, sprinkling water on her from I don't know his hat or his jacket or something like he's like dripping yeah. water Still on has, her. like spillover raindrops this like California how you like the rain girl and it's like Mike <laughs> you are a treasure you are a national treasure never changed Mike never changed yeah it's just like such a high school student that this is how he's trying to flirt with her right and you're like this is not gonna work buddy And the contrast to Edward, who Edward would never do such a thing because Edward still hasn't talked to her. No, he's about to, though. Bella sits down and Edward talks to her and says the first thing he's ever said to her. Hello. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to introduce myself last week. Um, I'm Edward Cullen. You're Bella. Yes. Oh, my God. So, yeah, he's going to talk to her and... He's been this presence this entire time, and we're thinking he's about to say something suave and sexy. And instead, out of his mouth comes a much higher-pitched voice than I ever saw coming. Like It takes me aback every time I hear it. And then it's stilted. 
it's so awkward. It's, I don't know, he's setting up very early on, and I do not get this vibe from the book, but I get it from the movie, and I just love this choice in the movie, that this is a very anti-social individual with a lot of social and personality disorders, and that he might be a very dangerous boy. <laughs> Not because he's a vampire, <laughs> but because he is an antisocial personality disorder individual that has ideas of grandiosity. And there's a dangerous combination that I see developing in Edward. And it starts right here. And Robert Pattinson has remarked that he kind of saw Edward also as a very potentially dangerous antisocial individual with like manic depressive disorders. And so that is how he played him as, was as this manic depressive antisocial individual. And we can see it. I remember that. seeing some story about how when they were making this movie, Stephanie Meyer was working on, I believe, Midnight Sun, which was a retelling of this of Twilight, but from Edward's point of view. And it was still years away from being published. I, I think that some chapters of it leaked and Myers got really pissed off about that. So she didn't publish the full thing for a really long time, but she had some chapters in progress that she showed to Catherine Hardwick and Robert Pattinson. So yeah, that kind of makes sense. The vibe that you get of Edward in the book is that he is just immediately very controlling of Bella in ways that you think to yourself, this is not at all justified what you're doing here, dude. You're this this is creepy what you're going for here. And I think they actually they from what we see in the movie, they dial back the creep factor on Edward a little bit in the movie, but that weird troubled persona is coming forward in our Pat's performance. I think it's creepy in a different way. Yeah, so yeah, yeah it's the a different kind of creep. book version of Edward is a full-blown sociopathic just controller. An yeah. And there's a reason why. Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> is a fanfic initially of Twilight and then spins off into its own original fiction. And that's the part of Fifty Shades that I am very interested in is the idea of it starting out as Twilight fanfic because it is capturing something in that way of the very dangerous, non-consensual power dynamics that are happening often in teen romance literature in general, but with Twilight specifically, that you have this controlling, dominant, almost psychotic personality that's coming in and saying, I want you, and thus you are mine. You are my possession now, and I must take care of you. Here in this movie, it kind of shifts a little bit to... I am a very troubled youth. I have a lot of self-loathing and I have antisocial tendencies. I don't know how to relate to people. I think of myself as a monster and I am just not even going to think before I speak and I'm going to compulsively do actions that are non-consensually line-crossing and creepy mm -hmm. and I'm not even aware that that's the case because I have no social construct knowledge and Bella's going to be down with that because she's also kind of awkward and so the movie, since the book is from the perspective so strongly of Bella of like, oh, Edward's like the hottest thing ever, that's kind of all we get and we're sort of stuck in that viewpoint yeah. from an outside observer perspective Perspective, the Twilight first movie just seems like these two very weird, socially awkward individuals that are finding each other and falling in love because they're kind of compatible in their disorders. But at the same time, 
I would not know part in their relationship, right? I find nothing attractive <laughs> about either of these people's like characters and personalities, but I see why they like each other. Right. And that's kind of cute. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There are some things I think the book does better and some things I think the movie does better, which was not the uh, outcome I expected to get from reading the book. <laughs> yeah, books have a little bit more time, but yeah, very different character profiles here is what we're saying. Both creepy, but very different. Yeah. And he has this high little voice that just cracks me up Hi, every time. Edward, this is or... not Robert Pattinson's natural voice. Like, he's making this choice. I was going to say, how deep did you expect his voice to be? It was like, hello, I'm Edward. Like, that not... deep or? Deep, but he just, he's raising it for this performance right here. He's like, hello. And you're like, hi. I don't know, maybe for a split second, we he wants to fool us into thinking this guy actually is a 17-year-old. Just very briefly when he first starts talking. Oh, maybe, yeah, the... Since he was turned before his vocal cords could develop further, let me hear it again. Never here. expanded and drop. Hello. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to introduce myself. So last yeah, he's hello. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't have a chance to introduce myself. It's a, yeah. He's it does seem like he's deliberately lifting his voice a little bit in his in the uh, the octaves or whatever. Yeah, I've heard a range of vocal performances from Robert Pattinson. Like this is a choice. I love the next scene because we cut to the hallway where Ella and Bedwar are now. They're talking, walking, and talking a little bit more. Kind of slow sorkening through the hallway there. Yeah, the slow sorking. Yeah, I like it. Get a little slow sorking going. But Bella has a golden onion, which I think was a prize. That the teacher offered. Yeah, the teacher mentions that at the beginning, like whoever does it the fastest wins the golden onion. And I actually loved that choice too, because it's the high school teacher trying to hype them up for this class exercise <laughs> with something completely trivial. Like, you get to win the golden onion. But yeah, so I guess they they're the smartest ones in that science class. Because she's done that lab before, and Edward's like 180, so he's had time to understand cellular mitosis, even though his cells they don't do anything anymore. They're static. They're dead. <laughs> just, uh, just frozen into making them look perfect. But Edward, he lets Bella know he's just trying really hard to figure Bella. He's already asking her a lot of questions about her life and about what she's up to. And she's like, why, why are you asking me all this? I'm just I'm trying really hard to figure you out. You're really hard to read. And we'll find out more about what that's all about later on. Oh, my God. Oh, I forgot. But she's like... Your eyes, they're a different color because he's been out of school for a little while. But now that he what we learn, I think, in the books is that he like goes hunting or something and he comes back well fed because his eyes are light gold again. It's something so like that. He's yeah. fine. Yeah. So now he can stand to be around her and try to introduce himself. And she notices this eye color change. And so she questions him on it and he starts to answer, realize he doesn't have an answer. And then he just amazingly awkwardly turns and walks away. Yeah, it's like, uh, well, it's the... Uh... Well, you know, the uh, the fluorescence, uh, the fuck it, I'm out of here. <laughs> and then he, yeah, he just, he just bounces. And I'm like, oh, amazing. Another great, just awkward, teen, awkward angst choice. Uh, the style, the style. Bella goes out to the parking lot to get back to her awesome old truck and sees Edward way across the parking lot. He's still staring her down because that's how Edward do. And Tyler, in his van, the licorice mobile, just barrels into the parking lot. Why is he traveling that fast in the parking lot? Why are you doing 70 in a high school parking lot? That doesn't really matter. He's about to plow right into Bella. But no, guess what? 
Edward well, to the rescue. He skids out of control. Yeah. Oh, does he? Just, just... Yeah, because he slips on a patch of ice. Yeah, but he's still going like 80 in this place. Like... Yeah. They actually jokingly bring up the physics of the scene in the commentary. We're like, how is the physics working? And there's like, nah, just don't, just don't worry yeah, about okay. it. You know, like, you don't understand <laughs> the true physics of XYZ. Yeah. But yeah, I think the general idea is that he came turning into this parking lot a little too fast, hit a patch of ice, and then panicked because... So I haven't, I haven't dropped this in a while. As a trademark New Englander... Oh, fuck, here we go. Oh, goddamn. Roads get icy, and there's a special thing when it comes to trying to counter-correct on ice. You actually want to turn the wheel in a very counterintuitive manner than your body initially wants to do. So you have to kind of train yourself into it. And so it seems like this kid, he he zigged when he should have zagged, and so that car <laughs> completely loses traction and slides, and it starts to come barreling right at her, and whoosh, out of nowhere, there's Edward, and he's there to sweep her up and push away the car with his other hand in one fell swoop, and the side of the car collapses because, side note, they built a malleable panel on the side of this car so uh, that he could nice. push into it and crunch <laughs> it, and the car stops. So he counteracts that moving force. He is an unstoppable object meeting a very fast-moving force, and this is what happens as he saves the girl in a very suspicious way. Yep, a little confusing. Everyone comes running over to check it out and cut to the hospital. Bella, she spies Edward off in the hallway, and some of the other pale people here, including the doctor who treated her, are talking to Edward, just saying, like, what the fuck, man? What are you doing? No good. What am I supposed to do? Just let her die? I mean, gosh, you know. So, Bella gets his attention and wants to talk to him about what just happened. And uh, I think this is one of those scenes that, folks, it's time for a little rendition of the the theater of cinema of cruelty. Um... I will be playing, naturally, Bella uh, in this exchange. Uh, London, if you'd like to play Edward. Fuck yeah, I would. Because here's the thing is Edward is going to gaslight the fuck out of Bella. So It's amazing. We present to you Gaslight by Stephanie Meyer. Yes. Uh, can I talk to you for a moment? H- how did you get over me so quickly? I-, I was standing right next to you. You were next to your car across the lot. He steps closer to her. His expression turns icy hard. No, I wasn't. She won't be bullied. Steps closer to him. Yes, you were. Y- you're confused. Y- you-, you hit your head. I know what I saw. And what exactly was that? You stopped that van. You pushed it away. Yeah, well, no one will believe you, so. I, I wasn't planning to tell anyone. This registers with Edward. They're inches away from each other. The tension thick. I just want to know the truth. Can't you just thank me and get over it? Thank you. A long beat as they look at each other, angry, defensive, and without a doubt, attracted. You're not going to let it go, are you? No. Then I hope you enjoy disappointment. (laughs) He's just going to turn and walk away. (laughs) This is a love story. They're going to fall in love. It's a love story. It's a love story there. He gaslights the fuck out of her. Like, (laughs) you... You, you saved me. No, no, I didn't. I wasn't there. What are you talking about? No, I'm not. You, you moved really fast. Nobody's going to believe you, so. You know, and then, like, he just, like, leaves. And you're like, okay. So the gaslighting yeah. has started. That night, she dreams of Edward. Maybe. 
the way the movie does this, I mean, in the book, she definitely dreams of him. The movie, she is in bed. She kind of jolts up with a start, looks over. We pan over. There's Edward in the dark staring at her. She immediately, like, we pan back to her. She turns on the light. We pan back, and Edward is gone. And she says in the voiceover, that was the first night I dreamed of Edward. Bitch, you didn't dream. Edward was in your room because Edward's fucking crazy. And one thing it also does that it does this twice when Bella has her maybe sometimes dreams. She's twitching about in her sleep. She's making some noises. And both of her hands are visibly on top of the covers in the frame. And that cracks me up because it's almost this... She's not masturbating, She's guys. I just want to clarify that. Like, <laughs> nothing is going on below these covers. She's just having a dream. And I'm like, oh, the puritanical nature of this coming in. And now, speaking of chaste, it's time for compost. Yeah. They go on a compost field trip because oh, nothing yeah. is more Pacific Northwest than going <laughs> on a composting field trip. I love that about the Pacific Northwest. Not making fun of that at all, but it is hilariously on point. <gasps> They take a bus to get there, but first, Mike is going to come up. Uh, National treasure, Mike Newton. Buddy. Oh, he's just trying. He appears. Oh, he's trying so hard, and he's going to try and ask Bella to the prom. It is a promposal prior to promposals becoming a big fanfare to do. So he is stumbling through this prom invite and the camera work here. Things that are going to happen here with the camera is another just amazing stylist choice because he cuts into her line of vision, smiling in the little Mike Newton way. Little Edward is behind him over the shoulder, and the camera is going to go in and out where it'll focus on Mike for a second when he cuts into her line of vision and starts talking, and then he blurs out so that Edward can come into sharp focus as Mike continues to talk. Yeah, there's an extreme rack focus is what you would call that. A rack focus from Mike to Edward, who is way behind him, but it's a long telephoto lens, so they're kind of compressed together within the same shot. And it's so good because it is this interior perspective and really just gets across that she is not paying attention to Mike at all. Occasionally, he will try to grab her attention again with like, so what do you think? And suddenly the camera <laughs> snaps back into the close-up focus on Mike's face. And she's like, I'm sorry, what? Are you talking? Oh, I'm <laughs> and sorry. And he's like, prom with me. You want to go? Right. And then once again, he fuzzes out so that she can see Edward. So like, she just cannot stay focused on poor Mike Newton, National Treasure. And so she turns him down pretty quick, pretty hard. And it's like, no, I'm going to be out of town that weekend. Maybe ask Jessica. I know she really wants to go with you. And so he's like, oh, okay. And he's really sad. Edward's really happy. He's smirking about this because he's already feeling possessive over Bella, even though (laughs) they've had two conversations. And in one of those, he was just gaslighting her. Oh, man. Oh, in the book, before this field trip thing happens, there's this sequence where they're doing a blood type test in one of the classes. I think the biology class again. Everyone is pricking their finger, and that like makes Bella nauseous because she can't really stand the sight of blood or the smell of blood at all. She goes outside and gets like kind of fainty and like is having trouble walking. Mike is there with her, taking care of her, but Edward, who wisely removed himself from the class because he didn't want to be around blood himself sees Bella and says, what's wrong with her? What's going on? 
Uh, well, she's just a little fainty. She's okay. No, I need to take care of this. And just picks up Bella and then carries her into the nurse's office and tells the nurse, she needs help right now. You need to take care of her. And then after that, Bella says, okay, I think I'm just going to go home now. You can't drive yourself home. I'm going to drive you. She's like, uh, no, I am going to drive myself in my truck, which I have, so I'm just going to do that. He drags her over to his Volvo. The book really wants us to know it's a Volvo <laughs> that he drives and says, yes. get in. And she like, you know, jerks away from him, looks back over her truck in her internal monologue. She's thinking to herself, okay, am I able to run over to that truck before he gets back? He gets to me again from his car. And apparently knowing what she's thinking, even though he can't read her mind, Edward tells her, if you run to your truck, I'm just going to drag you back to this car. Like, what the fuck, Edward? Back off, man. Yeah, because nothing's hotter than a guy who just, like, doesn't even acknowledge your personal autonomy. <laughs> you know? It's what every teen girl wants. It's a sequence wisely removed from the movie. <laughs> I'll say that for it. <laughs> that is intense. Yeah. So, yeah, here with this promposal and... His just possessive stare. In the commentary, Catherine Hardwick actually does bring up the imp of the perverse. And the moment that she brought that up, everything snapped into a little bit of focus for me where I was like, oh my God, that is one of the things that is happening here throughout this entire movie, really. And so it was fun to know that Hardwick is aware of this concept and really deliberately put it in throughout the movie. So what is the imp of the perverse? It is a metaphor of sorts or an expression for the urge to do exactly the wrong thing in a given situation for the sole reason that it is possible for the wrong thing to be done. And <laughs> okay. the impulse is compared to sort of an imp or a small demon often. This is something that comes up or has reference to in a lot of literary works. Charles Baudelaire liked to use it, as did Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, that guy. And Edgar Allan Poe actually even has a story that is called The Imp of the Perverse. So that's where most people take this expression from. Mm -hmm. And it is this concept of that feeling. So many of us have probably experienced the imp of perverse or perversity ourselves where there's that moment where you're like, uh, it's going to be such a train wreck if I open my mouth and say the following things right now, but I feel so compelled to do it for whatever <laughs> reason. So Mike, in this example, where it's like, uh, I, it's probably a terrible idea to ask Bella to prom, but I, I see can. my opening shot. I'm going to do it. I feel compelled to do it, even though, uh, it's going to come crashing down. So that feeling that some people might get where even as right before you do or you say something or even as you are doing that thing or saying that thing you're also internally cringing like why am I doing or saying these things right now this is terrible and then in the aftermath of verbalizing that you have that crash down where you the imp leaves you and you become that regular normal socially abiding person again and you're like why the fuck did i just do that yeah i had that happen one time where i think i said hey london do you want to do a podcast and then i thought oh no why did i ask for that <laughs> oh. uh, and then i said sure and then i was like oh god why so yeah <laughs> the cinema of cruelty is brought to you by the imp of perversity is really what that's all about 
But yeah, I mean, I do this all the time. I was like, God damn it. Why did I feel compelled to open my mouth there? Because I always do anyway. That's just my brand. But I am a perverse motherfucker. So this, yeah, this whole situation, though, hard work talks about it here with Mike. But then really, the imp of the perverse is kind of one of the best things, along with theater of the absurd, to ascribe to almost all of the actions in this movie is Mm -hmm. that it is a bunch of awkward teenagers and characters that you can tell are internally experiencing that quote-unquote imp of the perverse in the moment that they are doing and saying things, and it is killing them, and yet they can't not do it, because that is the essence of the awkward teen angst existence, is that you want to vocalize, you want to assert yourself, but it's never quite in the right way, or never the way that you imagined in your head. It's like some little demon imp has taken over your body (laughs) and done and said these things on your behalf, and then you're like, fuck. So that is, I think, what Hardwick is really great at doing is tapping into that that perverse little imp in any given situation. Beautiful. Yes. They get to the greenhouse where Edward is just continuing to pester Bella. She's tripping over things. So, you know, clearly she needs to be taken care of because she trips on things. And he's very blaming of her. He's like, why can't you watch where you step? God (laughs) damn it, Bella. Jesus, bro. Like, let's, Let's chill out. Let's chill. They get back out to the buses, and Edward tells her, I just, I don't, I don't think that we should be friends. Like, well, okay then. What the fuck, dude? It's, yeah, it's very back and forth, a whole lot of that. There's some severe Dutch angles happening here, which I love that comes up a few times in the movie where we have these very slanted, you know, Dutch angles, just a, you know, the camera is not level, it's slanted. Sometimes severely. Battlefield sometimes, Earth. Yeah, basically. Battlefield Earth. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that, oh God, you think there's a, a, a book on cinematography that refers to Dutch angles, not as Dutch angles, but Battlefield Earth angles? I hope so. God, I, I want that to be the case. And Edward said, yeah, we're not, we shouldn't be friends. And he just, I call this, he fonzies it. He pounds on the bus door and the bus door just opens. I assume that there's a bus driver in there, but we don't see him. So it's like he just hits the bus when, the bus door and it opens up. Yeah, Edward commands that the doors be open, and so they open. Although, apparently, actually a bus driver in there, a female bus driver who got super mad at Robert Pattinson in real life for banging on her bus door. Oh, God. <laughs> she yelled at him. This came up in the commentary that both Hardwick and Robert Pattinson were reminiscing. Like, oh, my God, she got so mad when uh, he hit on that glass door. So she took her bus seriously. Also, what came up in the commentary at this moment was Pattinson commenting on the look that Edward has in this moment. He's got this tailored peacoat. The collar is popped a little bit. He's got his hair perfectly coiffed. And Pattinson was like, look at this like tailor-made peacoat pop collar douchebag. Like, why would anyone want to hang out with him? (laughs) He looks like such a douche. And the fun thing is that, yeah, throughout this, for the most part, Edward Cullen is going to look like some amazing, like less than zero style 80s yuppie douchebag like that's his vibe and it's great and as Hardwick pointed out she's like well no one does hang out with him yeah he doesn't have any friends like Edward (laughs) that is amazing so it really once again taking it back around to this antisocial personality that also reminds me a little bit of when we were talking about Spree and the antisocial Spree killer that that is based off of who was very good at cultivating a wardrobe and designer sunglasses Mm -hmm. and 
keeping himself very clean and presenting, and yet he had something a little bit off with him that no one really wanted to be his friend or pay attention to him. He didn't get any love from the ladies. And Edward feels like that in this movie to me. He feels very antisocial. He doesn't have any friends. He's cultivated, mm -hmm. but like nobody wants to be around him because he's kind of an antisocial asshole. For some reason, since Bella is new, she's like, okay, I'm intrigued by this. And everybody else is like, girl, I told you to stay away. <laughs> like, Works out very well. The, later in a later scene, we're at the lunchroom, and a moment that I know had to be a mistake is we see the vampire family at the table, and Emmett is eating something. Why? He's a vampire. Yeah, that also came up in the commentary. They're like, <laughs> look at us all eating shit. And apparently they were Rice Krispies, and they're really delicious, uh, and so they wanted to eat them. You can't and... give a man Rice Krispies and tell yeah. him not to eat them. Yeah, Evan just started chowing down. He's like, it just happens. <laughs> and then later they like called it out. And it's like, I think in the books they're not actually supposed to eat. Because this was the other thing, too. Through all of the interviews that I found with the rest of the cast, very few of them were aware that Twilight was a book before doing this movie. Oh, wow. So a lot of them hadn't necessarily read the book until afterwards. Or they started reading the book when they were on set <laughs> and learned that it was a book. But the, I guess the Twilight book phenomenon hadn't really reached everyone yet in 2008 when they were making this. Yeah, so the they movie just thought they were doing a vampire that. movie. And they had Rice Krispie treats. And they're like, let's, let's eat these. So, like, they don't need to eat, but can they eat, I guess, is a different question within vampire lore. And that varies depending on different vampires. Some of them are like, yeah, it's fine. We just don't need to. But I enjoy it. You know, the Buffy school of vampirism. I think there's a bit like that in the book somewhere where Bella says, can you eat or could you drink something? And Edward replies, he never really gives a direct answer because he's fucking Edward in the book and he's an asshole. But he says something like, well, could you eat dirt if someone dared you to do it? She's like. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I ate dirt one time. It wasn't too bad. Good for you, Bella. Good for you. Speaking of Bella, she is invited out to the push with the rest of the kids to La go. Push. La, push. The the push. the push. The push. They say both. They they do both there. Well, I mean, in real life, it is the push. <laughs> There's no the. Well, after the invite to the push. Edward comes over to make Bella's life hell because that's what he does. And she, being the clumsy Bella that she is, drops an apple. The apple falls onto Edward's foot. He kicks it up into his hands. And we have this very awkward moment where we have to recreate the cover to the book. I think it's super fun. <laughs> I like that choice. Hardwick was really excited about that choice, too. Just to have that couple moments of frame of the book cover. So it's not the title within the movie. It's the book cover within the movie. Admittedly, so that's a fun little thing. That's something you don't see very often. You really have to try to make that happen. Edward says, like, uh, you know, I would just like to hear your theories on me. And she's like, oh, I don't know. Radioactive spider, your kryptonite thing. And he says, oh, well, those are all superhero things. I kind of thought you would think I was the villain. And this is a really good time to point out how in the book, not only does Edward gaslight Bella a whole lot, he is negging her almost all the fucking time. Like earlier on when uh, she says, I can't go to the dance. I want to drive to a uh, Seattle. And he says, well, let me drive you to Seattle because that truck of yours won't be able to make it. Oh, fuck your truck. Yeah, sure. Whatever. At one point she drops her keys and he appears out of nowhere to catch them. And she says, how do you always appear out of nowhere? He says, I can't help it if you're so unobservant. Like fucking what the hell, man? Me stalking you. It's your fault, baby. Yeah. And then this bit in the book. When he says, I want to hear your theories on me, and she says, I don't know, radioactive spider, are you vulnerable to kryptonite? 
movie Edward says, oh, those are superhero things. I thought you would think I'm a villain or whatever. Book Edward just hears these radioactive spider kryptonite theories and just says, huh, well, that's not very creative of you. Like, what the fuck? Such a douchebag. Also, the real answer is vampire, which isn't that much more creative than Superman or Spider-Man. So, you know, fuck you, dude. Yeah, also, the way to pick up women is just to insult them as quickly and brutally as you can, right? Just tell them everything they do is uncreative and unobservant, and you're in. <laughs> Classic neg. Yeah, the fun thing about this Apple cover thing, though, oh, is yeah? that it, practical effects-wise, it is on a little clear fishing wire, and it oh. took them, like, so many takes to try I to bet. get this yeah. to actually jump up exactly in his little, little palms, <laughs> and they were about ready to just give up and then they finally got a take that was like all right awesome but oh, yeah it wow. took them a while i bet and yeah that's something you can't yeah it's, hard and it's from this like salad bar which more high schools just need salad bars <laughs> as an option that's pretty great but Catherine hardwick wanted to put that in there just because she wanted to have some of that color to lighten up the scene and to bring in that vegetarian metaphor again yeah at any rate, uh, movie Edward, he's a little bit more endearing than book Edward. And Bella says, well, look, why don't we hang out? You know, the kids, they're going to La Push later on on that indigenous reservation. He's like, uh, no, I can't do that. I, I can't do that. So he doesn't do that. I can't go there. I can't go there. And, well, we find out why. We get back to the beach and we, we're in that van again with the licorice. I love that that's yeah, a repeating the thing. the licorice returns. Licorice just is returning. We meet Jacob. And as I said earlier, this in the book is where we finally meet Jacob instead of much earlier. And Bella just says, oh, yeah, I invited Edward Cullen to come out here. He didn't seem to want to come. And there's this older guy who's with the indigenous tribe and just very solemnly says, the Cullens don't come here. <laughs> Cullens don't come here. Like, Okay. Um, and you are, and why don't they? And <laughs> questions, but we're not going to ask those follow-up questions right now. But La Push yeah. is an actual place. Yay. It is the largest community within the Quileute Reservation. Okay, nice. And the name of La Push comes from a sort of initially the French word that then got kind of changed into more of a local word for the mouth and why it is called the mouth or le bush slash le push is because it is the mouth of the river right there oh, and the rialto okay. beach as to the north and then le push beach as to the south so le push is kind of an area and then there's specifically the le push beach and La Push was actually technically even more so than Forks, the westernmost zip code in the United States, which is 98350. Oh, wow. They're, yeah, they're about to run out of numbers at that Yeah, that's, that that's the whole little thing out there. Jacob is explaining to Bella the why the Cullens do not come out here, and it gets into some strange, old, scary stories that his tribe seems to have related to the Cullens. Yeah, and he's like, we're descended from wolves, and there's apparently this other tribe that showed up on our lands hunting. They said that they were different, so we made a treaty with them. We're like, you stay off our lands, and we'll let you kind of hang around here. That's pretty much all he has to say at the time. Bella's mm -hmm. going to go and look up those legends later. But filming notes here is sure. that we get 
a moment of a discussion between these two down on the beach. And the beach is... It's not your sunny, lit, sandy (laughs) beach. We've got surfers in the background. Those are actual surfers that were out at La Push surfing. But it is very overcast. It is very rainy. And it apparently was so cold that the conversation that happens up by the vans were all supposed to be on the beach. And all of the actors were so cold and so (laughs) waterlogged and so miserable. And it was so windy that they couldn't even really put a lot of cover down on the beach to get these extended shots without them getting soaked. That's why we like have two hot seconds of Jacob and Bella down on the beach and they're in their little raincoats and they're clearly getting rained on. Mm-hmm. And then they had to move it up to the parking lot where Hardwick went around and asked all of the local surfers that were there if they could use their vans. And they created this little boxed in warmth area with all of the heaters cranked up and had them all, you know, like they're all in their little blankets, huddled in the blankets, in the vans eating licorice for the scene and that was not planned she sort of had more of a cinematic vision for that but it was just too cold and rainy and miserable to do the scene so they shot it in the van and the van became a thing so yeah that's what happened there and yeah also there's another scene where the the guy that we saw in that diner earlier the friend of bella's dad he's killed off by the bad vampires I do like the dialogue there where one of the bad vampires says like, oh, it's always the same questions. Who are we? What do we want? What do you, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And Laurent, just the boss of the group, seemingly just says, don't play with your food, man. Just get to the fucking point. Oh, my God. Laurent Mm -hmm. is my unlife goals. He's the (laughs) best. He has so much style and he's just sitting in this little speedboat, just looking like a boss. He's so attractive. I'm, just, I'm so into everything about Laurent. He's a different type of national treasure than Mike Newton, but he also is a national there treasure. There can be different kinds. It's okay. Bella, soon she's talking to her other friends, and it's sunny outside. We learn that when it's sunny, that the, the Cullens just don't show up. Apparently, it was really hard to find a day that actually was sunny when they were filming, (laughs) and the clouds kept moving all around, and so this was one of the biggest pain-in-the-ass shots in the entire thing. Later, when they get to the meadow scene, which is also sunny, because of this whole weather production fiasco, they are like, fuck it. They got that shot when they went back to Los Angeles and set up the meadow on an L.A. golf course so that they could film the the sunlight scene because they just couldn't get it in filming over the springtime few months because this filming wrapped on May 8th. So they were pretty much shooting in March and April in the Pacific Northwest. So there wasn't a whole lot of sun, lots of rain. It was brutal. They go dress shopping. Bella wanders off, gets a book, wanders around a little bit more and is cornered by some very creepy guys. And it's getting a little intense. She has to knead one of them in the groin. And there is a passage in the book I absolutely love where she is, she's ready to blind one of these motherfuckers. In the book, her, t- her monologue, she says, I braced myself, feet apart, trying to remember through my panic what little self-defense I knew. Heel of the hand thrust upward, hopefully breaking the nose or shoving it into the brain. Finger through the eye socket to try to unhook it and pop the eye out. And the standard knee to the groin, of course. Like, wow! Bella is ready to go uh, with these guys. She doesn't do any of, in the book, she does none of that. In the movie, she does at least get like one knee to the groin before a car pulls up. 
again, book Edward, movie Edward, a little bit different. Book Edward just rolls up, doesn't even get out of the car, just opens the door and says, get in. But uh, movie Edward, he has a moment where he can get out, he can stare the guys down, and Bella can see, like, oh, I should probably go ahead and get into this car of my own volition. Yeah, he gives these drunk dudes the predator stare, and somehow, in their drunken condition, they don't need words to understand <laughs> the threat. That They understand that this cold, dead stare is the gaze of a truly apex predator and they back the fuck down. They're like, we do not want to rumble with this guy in a tailor-made pop-collar peacoat driving a Volvo C30. I mean, those are all things you don't fuck with. That's true. Yeah. So he gets back in his little Volvo C30 and sort of speeds away with this really cool, weird trick turn. Oh, yeah, there's um, some great stunt It looks stunt like they here. kind of maybe took a frame or two out on the turn to make that even speed up faster, I but it's some that. really cool driving, yeah. especially yeah. at that slow speed. Speaking of slow speeds, they're barreling it along at, like, 35 miles an hour. Uh, yeah, there's a... <laughs> Edward is trying to calm down, and uh, I we get this exchange that I love. You talk about something else, distract me so I won't turn around. You should put your seatbelt on. <laughs> you should put your seatbelt on. <laughs> I don't know how well that comes across in the audio, but our Pats just has this the funniest look in his face when she tells him, put your seatbelt on. He just laughs like, what? Put my, put my seatbelt on? You put your seatbelt on. Bitch, please. I am an immortal undead who can only die by decapitation or in a fire both of which can happen in a car wreck. So maybe, yeah, put your goddamn seatbelt on. Oh, the book is full of all these moments of Bella noticing that Edward is always driving like 100 miles an hour. He's like, I've never been in a car wreck. I've never even gotten a ticket. And it's like taps his forehead. I got a built-in radar detector up here, man. I'm not clumsy like you, okay? <laughs> Although the seatbelt line, not in the script, and apparently something that Kristen Stewart just came up with in the car. So that might be why he's laughing a little bit, is that yeah. he's just like, what seatbelt? Why don't you put your seatbelt on? It feels but, like, yes. a, like a spontaneous thing, which I'm very glad the movie allows them to do. It's one of those things that makes it a bit more endearing, and it seems like these two might actually have some chemistry and get along. They go to dinner, they run into their friends who are great wingmen for K-Stew that are like, yeah, you guys go to dinner. So they get into the dinner place to order pasta. Only Bella eats. This motherfucker's just going to sit there and watch her eat this giant plate of tortellini God, or what have you. Awkward thing you can do. Yeah, and she's like, you're really not going to eat anything? He's like, I'm on a special diet. Oh, she's like, okay. Diet. And then she also suddenly realizes, so there's this whole thing where, like, the hot waitress comes by, like, the rockabilly, Pacific Northwest version of rockabilly hot waitress. Oh, comes yeah. And she's like, yeah. I'll get you anything you want. Doesn't even look at her, acknowledge her. He's like, no, I'm fine, because I'm staring at Bella. I've got Bella's eyes to stare into. All of a sudden, it dawns on Bella. Wait a second. I'm not even in Forks right now. Why are you just showing up in your goddamn Volvo out of nowhere to swoop in and save the day? And so we get another little excellent dialogue exchange. Now for scene two of the Theater of Cinema of Cruelty. So how about some answers? Yes, no, to get to the other side, 1.772453. I didn't ask for the square root of pi. You knew that? How did you know where I was? I didn't. She shakes her head, frustrated. Don't go. She seems torn by some internal dilemma. Then finally, 
Were you following me? I feel very protective <laughs> of you. So that's a yes? Yes, I, I followed you. I tried to keep my distance until you needed help. You said before that you heard what those guys were thinking. Can you read minds? Yeah, so that's her response to, <laughs> I followed you. Uh -huh. I don't think I can stay away from you anymore. Then don't. So, okay. guy takes you to dinner and is like, here's the thing. I've been stalking you because I feel very protective of you. Mm -hmm. So I followed you all the way to Port Angeles just in case you needed help. And I just lurked in the background until you needed help because I knew you were going to at some point. And I can read everybody's mind in this room except yours. And that interests me because... I can't control that, and I need to be able to control everything. <laughs> and also, I don't think I can stay away from you anymore. And her entire response to this is, then don't. Because I think it's so hot that you've just been stalking me this entire time and showing up in my bedroom and watching me sleep and saving me from potential gang-banging rapists because you feel very protective of me. It's all a very strange situation. I think that the movie, because of those like spontaneous moments that we mentioned, like with in the car earlier, and just the few changes that the script is making from the book, these two are given a little bit of opportunity to have some chemistry and some fun together. In the book, the reason for Bella just being cool with Edward stalking her, it seems, really just comes down to the fact that he is so un godly attractive to her she just cannot get over how hot this guy is and if he's stalking her she just thinks whatever man the hot guy's into me i'll take it there's a lot of red flags that i'm seeing here right now man but <laughs> you're really really attractive so <laughs> don't worry about it oh yeah. you know when you look at someone with rose tinted glasses all those red flags just look like flags yeah, exactly. Yo. High flying, wonderful flags, wisdom, preach, you uh. know? All right, so they get back home eventually, and more animal attacks, quote-unquote animal attacks have ensued. Mm -hmm. We know they're not animals. They're totally those rebel vampires that are just eating up the town. This population of, like, 3,000 people, it's dwindling down pretty fast. <laughs> now... Bella gets home to do the vampire research deep dive because she has her one little book that she got mm. at this bookstore. She reads one page from it and then she sees the word that she wants to Google. And so she Googles that instead. She puts down the book and she turns her research to those early 2000s internets. And she finds some stuff. And this stuff is about... Vampires. vampires and one thing that is hilarious to me other than the fact that she like needs the book to jen jumpstart her google deep dive is it's like this bitch has just never <laughs> read or seen a vampire story before because all of the little things we're zooming in on that are supposed to be these zoom in revelations are they're super cold and they don't eat regular human food. They drink the blood of humans. And it's like, yeah, this is basic vampire 101 stuff, but this is a revelation to her. She's putting this together because she has Googled vampires on the internet. Yeah, it's, it is weird because the book does have Bella say to herself, like, well, I know what vampires are from movies and television. And then later on is asking Edward, so you don't have to deal with this thing or this thing. He's like, no, there's no coffins. Now sunlight's fine. No, I'm, the crosses are okay. It's, it's all good. Whatever. 
dispelling the vampire myths. We don't get that here in the movie. In the movie, it's like, yeah, Bella's just the idea of a vampire is a completely foreign concept to her. Yeah, and so these are, in a way, the streamlined rules that the Twilight vampire is going to play by, just that they are immortal, they're cold, and they drink blood. Like, those are the only ones we need to be concerned with, so that is what is popping up on the screen. Although, very strangely, the thing that triggers her into her Google deep dive search is that she finds this word in the Quaaludes folklore book that she's picked up from the store, which is the... Apo Tompkin. And so the Apo Tompkin is a figure, and mm-hmm. she looks this up on Google and finds that it is equatable to the Cold One. And that apparently Ooh. this is the Quaalute Cold One vampire legend. So this is where we'll get back into this comparative mythos, I guess, of the Quaaludes and a little bit of Native American mythology in general. So the thing that's interesting about the Quaalute legend cycle is that there is this idea among the stories of that community that the Quaaludes specifically originated from wolves, that there were a couple of gods of sorts, spirits, that transformed this wolf into the first human. There are not shape-shifting legends after that. There's not a folklore among the Quaaludes that they or any of their ancestors ever turned back and forth between man and wolf. But there is a little bit of that seedling. So I guess I see where Meyer was taking that from is Mm. this idea of the descendants of wolves. They do not, however, have any specific vampire legends or legends of the cold ones. Mm. That is an invention of Stephanie Meyer. It's also a point of contention among some of the Quaalute community that she sort of took, appropriated, and changed the foundations of their legend cycle. So that's an issue. It's also weird that she took this Apotemkin figure or word that then appears on the screen on a fake Google page. This page does not, well, it did not exist. I'm going to get to that in a minute too. But this view that we get on the page that she's looking at with this really cool illustration and this word saying that they are the cold ones, that was made for the movie. And the Apotemkin in actual Native American mythology is a giant fanged sea monster that pulls people in to eat them. So there is a consumption and a fang thing, but it's more of kind of a sea serpent type of legend. And it particularly goes after careless children. (laughs) It is said to have this long red hair. And in some variations, it seems to perhaps be a human woman before it was changed into a serpent. So there's a general idea that this is kind of a myth or an interpretation that it's a myth used to instill fear in children to keep them from venturing into areas alone without parental guidance. And there are two things that I find very specifically interesting as to why they chose this creature as the one that Bella finds here, because one, not a vampire at all, sea serpent, and two, specifically it is a creature that lives or is said to live in one of the inlets of the Bay of Fundy, which is located between Maine and New Brunswick. <laughs> so super east coast. So hey. in a bay off to the northeast we... is this one sea serpent creature. And apparently this creature 
kind of like almost like the Loch Ness monster, right? It's like it's hanging out there between Maine and New Brunswick, and somehow this is becoming the stand-in for the quote-unquote cold ones yeah. in the Pacific Northwest Twilight Vampire mythos. That's where the zip codes start with zero. That's yeah. that's way out there. <laughs> so I I don't know why they chose this other than maybe they were like, oh, a fanged thing that eats people. Like, we'll turn that into our vampire. But it is not. Note on the website that she's looking up, because I did freeze frame on the HTML address of this Cold Ones website to go to it. And I put it in my little browser, which is... Uh, like a www.freezerstoragedS.com. What? And then there's like uh, some things that kind of go after it. But even if you just put that into your browser, it will take you to a site that now does exist that was built by a fan who apparently had did the same thing I did first (laughs) to look up this HTML address to see what was there and found that most of the HTML addresses that are in the list of things that she searches were ones that had been set up by Summit Entertainment and owned by them. But this freezerstoragedscom thing had not had anybody do anything (laughs) with it yet. And so this fan, as a fun exercise set up the domain, and if you go there, it is an attempted recreation at the page that Bella looks at in the movie. There's a whole little like description there that that's the exercise and what they're doing. And they also set up a fake Google search engine page, which you can click on first to more accurately go through the entire journey. So you can start on that Google page, type in cold one, and it'll lead you to this page <laughs> and all of the different stuff. So. Yes, as www.freezerstoragedscom It'll take you there. Well, the next day, Edward and Bella, they're back at school. Bella looks at Edward and just walks off into the woods, and Edward just figures, well, fuck, I guess I have to follow her. Why else would she walk up into the woods if she did not want me to follow her? Gotta do that. And we get the exchange. Yes, Theater of Cruelty, part three. The How Long Exchange. You're impossibly fast and strong. Your skin is pale white, ice cold. Your eyes change color, and sometimes you speak like you're from a different time. Turns to face him. You never eat food or drink or come out in the sunlight. And you said no to the beach trip only after you heard where it was, because the treaty. This last registers with him. She steps closer to him. How old are you? Seventeen. How long have you been seventeen? A long beat as we begin to circle them, and the camera does circle them in the scene. Oh, does it ever. It's awesome. Yes. We are in a moody fucking woods right now. The fog machine is strong. He sees he can't hide anymore. Honesty is an enormous risk, but he has to take it. A while. She inhales. She knew, but it's still shocking. We circle them faster. I know what the cold ones are. What you are. Say it. Out loud. Say it. All sound suddenly drops out. We hear only her whisper. Vampire. They seem to hover in momentary stasis. Him utterly exposed. Her reality utterly rocked. Are you afraid? No. Then ask me the most basic question. What do we eat? You won't hurt me. You're different. You think you know me? He glares at her. She holds her ground. Suddenly, he takes her by the hand, starts walking. Where are we going? Up the mountain. Out of the cloud bank. You need to see what I really am. 
what I look like in the harsh light of the sun. You need to see the truth. He pulls her, but she stumbles. Slow down! Suddenly, he is right next to her. Are you afraid? No, I'm not afraid. You should be. <laughs> and then proceeds to Benny Hill run up the mountainside with her on your back. Oh my god, the, yeah, the cable cords are back. They're pulling them up this mountain. It is hilariously awkward looking because the weight distribution when you're on suspended cable cords is just not the same thing as running, and they're not counter-correcting for that at all, so it looks real weird. But they make it... So he gets up there, he breaks out into the sunlight, and there is just an amazing amount of melodrama ensues where he reveals his skin to the sunlight. And this is possibly one of the things that is made fun of the most is when he's like, this is what we are. This is the skin of a killer, Bella. And it's like highly pixelated. It's kind of like a little sparkly, a little rainbow, but it mostly just looks highly pixelated. And to be fair, this idea of vampire skin sparkling under the sunlight like diamonds, I get where that's coming from in terms of this idea that they're so hard and unbreakable that they're the hardest thing, one of the hardest things on the moss scale, right, of the diamond variety. So their skin is basically made of diamond or transformed into something calcified. And... Yet, it is really hard to represent that in any non-laughable matter on screen. It's just silly, and it's wonderfully silly. There's a passage from the book describing Edward in this that I think is, it's a little bit of that purple prose that you've talked about in the past. Bella says to herself, His white shirt was sleeveless, and he wore it unbuttoned, so that the smooth white skin of his throat flowed uninterrupted over the marble contours of his chest, his perfect musculature no longer merely hinted at, behind concealing clothes. He was too perfect, I realized, a piercing stab of despair. There is no way this godlike creature could be meant for me. Yeah, he's just too good for you, Bala, because he's <laughs> dead. That's that's the thing. Also, I guess like there's a lot of different things. There's a little bit of a range of stuff that people could be attracted to in this situation. Maybe it's the fact that, yeah, he is just otherworldly levels of attractive and he's controlling and he's dominant like some people are into that other people are into just like the fact that he is so (laughs) self-loathing it's like wow like he just is crumbling inside and has no self-esteem hot and uh, other people are just really into the fact that he's like kind of undead so i do want to talk about this here for a second because it's take us there it's interesting to me, and this is something that I've actually used in folklore college classes before when talking about the vampire as this cultural phenomenon and a folklore phenomenon. Because folklore in general tends to reveal a lot about the societies that construct it and use it and how they change or manipulate certain symbols or meanings from versions that have existed previously. And we really get this like genesis pop culturally of the sexy vampire with Anne Rice, who's largely credited with bringing the world this Mm. hypersexual, exquisite vampire specimen. And they, in Anne Rice's stuff, tend to be actually adult bodies that are in their 30s. And then throughout the 90s, we start to tick down the age of the preserved vampire into the Buffy the Vampire Slayer type of years where they're largely in their 20s. And so it becomes this 20-something sexuality. And then we get this Twilight era where vampires suddenly are these preserved 
teenage bodies. And so this idea that the sexualization of the perfect preserved specimen just keeps getting younger and younger as the decades progress. Hmm. And it's kind of like, where is going to be the cutoff line, right, of that hypersexual nature of hypersexualizing what is technically a preserved 17-year-old body for the rest of time? Hopefully 17 is the cutoff. Hopefully. Yeah, we'll see. And then <laughs> at some point, there's also this interesting thing about the nature of the age differential. Because people like to, you know, just kind of jokingly toss out this idea that Edward is really, really old, right? He even just said, like, how long have you been 17? A while. I think we find out in the books that that while is somewhere between 140 and 180. He I was, can't remember. He was born in 1901 and was made a vampire in 1918 during the Spanish flu epidemic. Look at you. Okay. So <laughs> I read the yeah, book, London. This, Did you not get that? <laughs> this dude is like a hundred years older right, than she is. Right. And so there's that question then when it comes to the ideas of consent and power dynamics. So I just safe worded there, but we're not done yet. So uh, we're going to ignore the safe word. Like Edward Cullen, we're going to ignore <laughs> safe words. And we are going to keep plowing through. And here we have this idea that his body is frozen as a 17-year-old, but he has psychologically perhaps progressed. I guess there's an argument of do you, does your body need to mature in order for – and your brain need to mature in order for you to psychologically develop past mm -hmm. a 17-year-old. So maybe there's that argument that he is frozen in a 17-year-old psyche, but he has had the life experience of – a 117 year old plus you know man and then we have this girl who has only had the time to mentally develop to about 16 17. one of my favorite things to do to students actually when talking about vampires is in their twilight section put up some slides and what i'll have is a couple of different representations of taboo sexual relationships right if you put up a picture of an adult man in, say, his 40s and 50s standing with an eight-year-old child and say, oh, is this an okay Jesus. sexual relationship? Most people are like, no, no, Fuck it is no. not. Because there is a lot of uncomfortable things that come along with that. This idea that an eight-year-old is not mature enough psychologically to be able to engage in that kind of stuff and that there's this predatory feel. We also have like, okay, well, what if the girl is actually old enough so pictures of Anna Nicole Smith, for example, with her husband that she had who was like in his 90s or something, you know, and she yeah. was like in his her 30s. 80s, but yeah, yeah. And so that like that visual and most people were also really uncomfortable by that visual. Right. But, you know, they're both consenting adults. Sorry, safe word, but still let them be, you know. Yeah. So they're both of <laughs> age they both are participating in what seems to be an agreed upon relationship but people visually did not like that yeah. look technically those two are closer in age than edward and bella are but <laughs> then you have an entire phenomenon that are really invested in this romance between these two characters and so what i find fascinating about that is when you put the picture of edward and bella up on the screen most people do not think twice about it or have a problem with it, which actually indicates that on some foundational 
psychological level, most people's opposal to age differential relationships are actually aesthetic. Yep. And that is fascinating to me. It's like they say that it's a problem with emotional maturity and psychological development, but when it comes down to it, our vampire literature sort of suggests that people are actually just not aesthetically into older bodies getting with younger ones. So fascinating there. <laughs> There's also this, uh, I also like to put up this slide of like a corpse, right? Like in terms of like a rotted skeleton and then like a corpse. And it's like, are these sexual objects for most people, right? Like necrophilia, totally a thing. It's out there. But by and large, not as many people look at like the skeleton or the rotted skeleton or even the fresh corpse and say like, that is a thing I want to do, right? Like I want to <laughs> jump on that. But you animate that corpse and you make it hot. And suddenly, once again, kind of like the, the aestheticness of age differentials Really, the problem with necrophilia most people have is aesthetic and conditional to the state of the body. Like, the fucking the dead isn't necessarily the problem, right? I mean, of course, there's a slight difference between a unanimated corpse and the vampire, but necrophilia doesn't really become a part of the taboo equation in vampire lit. People aren't like, oh my god, you're fucking something that's dead. It's like, oh man, you're you're fucking something that wants to eat you or what have you. But really, this is a lot of the dead stuff that carries over into the vampire, the cold, unfeeling nature, the lack of emotional capacity that's often represented in vampire stuff, the the coldness of the body. So there's a lot of stuff that actually does the quote-unquote sexy otherness parts mass culturally of necrophilia get transposed onto the vampire and they leave all like the messy like also maybe rotting stuff you know to the side it's a preserved corpse we're talking about like some Lenin style like wax figure in a glass box somewhere type of corpse that still gets to move and participate and people are okay with that you know so it's like it's fun to just see where people's like kind of sexual investment psychology just gets kind of like tweaked and poked at within this literature. And so we have that here in the scene is we have this guy who's much, much older than her, who is dead and walking around. And this is like the hottest fucking relationship <laughs> to like a good portion of oh. the reader pool in the early 2000s fascinating kind so, of, right. yeah. i don't have a problem with that i'm just pointing it out it's aesthetics it's definitely aesthetics <laughs> it just comes down to it <laughs> so Are yeah that's what's going done. on with this relationship i i am for now yeah <laughs> okay i mean because then the scene that i always laugh at every single time i'm i really i don't know that i'm supposed to laugh at this begins to happen where edward says everything about me is meant to draw you in my face my skin my smell my hair as if i'd even need that as if you could outrun me it just begins <laughs> jumping Same around man. screaming this stuff out i laugh every single time i i want to hope i'm supposed to laugh at this because it's so absurd despite all that bella is just really into Edward and they lie together while he sparkles. We do have the meadow scene in there, which I did learn from interviews was the genesis of Twilight. Stephanie Meyer had a dream and her dream was of this vampire and a high schooler in love in a meadow. And she woke up and she's like, I want to write down this dream because I liked it. 
and I kind of want to know what happened next. So she started basically writing fan fiction of her own dream. And <laughs> somehow that she, her words were like, nobody was more surprised than me when I was done with my dream exploration journey and it was a book length and then they published it. So she did not set out to write Twilight as a novel. <laughs> she just was dream journaling and fanficking more or less. So that's how that happened. And the deleted scenes that I will bring up, there were two of them that I thought were worth mentioning, is that there was one in which they seemed to be lying in a meadow again somewhere, this time in an overcast place. And there's this strange interaction where Bella's kind of teasing him a little bit about like, you want a taste? You want a taste of me? And then she puts her finger in his mouth and pricks it on his fang so that she gets a he gets a taste of her blood God damn. and he teases her and is such a fragile human or whatever that she was able to get her skin pierced by this one little thing. Jeez. But it, so it was kind of fun and kinky in that way, but I guess was also didn't quite go along with the flow of this idea that he can't even kiss her without being worried that he's losing control. Yeah. And yet here he just like tasted a drop yeah, of her We've blood. had this scene where he's like yelling at her and saying like, you are my own personal brand of heroin. I can't, I don't know if I can control myself around you. Yeah. So that scene would have been fun if like she poked her finger on that and he just like lost his goddamn mind, <laughs> but he did not. So yeah, we didn't need it, but it was fun that they were going to maybe try to flirt with that go there the one that i was like holy shit is that at some point he's also seemingly trying to convince her that he's too much of a monster for her to be with or something i don't know because it starts with her saying well maybe my number was up when the car almost crushed me basically maybe we're operating under like final destination rules where i really should have died when that car crushed me <laughs> and you saved me and it's an anomaly and so now I'm just on borrowed time anyway so let's do this and his response to that is your number was up the moment I met you I was like <laughs> damn oh dude. shit okay uh, so of course like this is the kind of stuff that I'm like well I'm into this because I'm into like Hannibal right and I oh. can only really embrace romance when they're serial killers yeah. like that's the only time I will allow things to get mushy is if they're also trying to kill each other so I'm fine with it but at the same time like this is more if it has a mass popular romance and like those are some dark themes like the moment i saw you i knew one day i was gonna kill you so wow. we're operating on borrowed time anyway you know i mentioned earlier i thought there were some things the book did better than the film one of the big critiques i always heard the film was during this whole section where they're he's revealing he's a vampire and he's telling her i like you smell so good to me i want to like devour you i'm very dangerous and bella's just constantly i don't care i'm not afraid it's cool it's cool and there doesn't seem to be much motivation for her to want to take this risk what the book gets across a little bit better is that one while edward does really want to devour uh bella he cares about her so much and he's so intrigued by her because he can't read her. So for the first time ever, he has to really try to communicate with somebody to learn about them and starts asking her a lot of questions. And then through the process of asking her a lot about herself, Bella for the first time is able to talk about herself. She says, I can't, I couldn't remember the last time I talked so much about myself and really enjoys and loves like him asking all these questions about herself. And he enjoy Edward enjoys that so much that he, as he tells Bella, while I want to consume you, the thought of you dead, I think would be more painful 
than the pleasure I would get from drinking your blood. So the dynamic, I think, is a little bit more clear in the book, and you understand more why why these two are kind of like two pieces of, of a puzzle that fit together really well. Edward enjoys being able to ask someone about their life, and Bella really enjoys someone having a genuine curiosity in her as a person that she is not getting from really anyone else in her life. So that's where I think the book is actually doing a better job of explaining why the hell these two would want to be together. So if you run into a neglected girl with daddy issues, just ask her questions about herself and like, <laughs> you've got it. You got it hooked. It's uh, fine. Y- you ever seen a, a Big Mouth, that cartoon on Netflix? I'm familiar with it. Okay, I've th- seen a few episodes. There's just a line from that that always makes me laugh. It's the, uh, the ghost of Duke Ellington is talking to a, one of the kids in the show. Strange show. But he says, let me tell you what the secret is to women. Listen to them. Listen to them? Yes. Listen to the things that they say. Remember the things that they say, and at a later date, reiterate what they said to you. That works. It is shockingly effective. And then also just insult their intelligence. That too. Because you know, that's the Twilight playbook. Gotta get there a little bit here. Be like, baby, I think you're really dumb, and I'm really surprised that you knew what the square root of pi was, but <laughs> I really want to consume you. Isn't that hot? And in a way... I get why that is appealing. There's this certain acceleration of that taboo situation of somebody wants you so bad that they almost want to rip you apart, right? And it's that constant overcoming of restraint and passion tends to be a really popular razor's edge line in Mm -hmm. erotic and romantic fiction. So I get it, but also like, whoa. So... Plow He's going to take her home to meet her family. This episode's going to be really long, but we're just going to embrace it at Whatever. this point and it's like, edit it down later. Fine, whatever. Takes her to this beautiful house that made me, immediately made me think of like the buildings that Frank Lloyd Wright had designed. And also made me remember that I remember in interviews that before she got into the movie business, Catherine Hardwick was an architect. Studied architect. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. She says like, oh, I got into it and I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to make all these pretty houses. They're going to have all these pretty parts. And they said, no. No, girl, you can't do that. They got to be functional. You're not making anything functional. So I stopped. <laughs> it's like why she got to have architecture. She couldn't make pretty things. <laughs> yeah, which this house is so, so pretty. It is part of the naturalist architecture movement. A lot of mid-century 1970s naturalist vibes. It is the Hoke House in Portland, Oregon. It is gorgeous. It was commissioned by John Hoke, who was a Nike executive at the time that this was commissioned, um, built as his family home. He got architect Jeff Koval of Skylab Architecture and Metcalf Construction um, with Lucy Metcalf as the interior designer and landscaper of this house. So it has a bit of a pedigree. Those are And names. it is... It is gorgeous. It is, yeah, out in Portland, Oregon, where they were filming some of this. Most of this actually was filmed in Oregon rather than Washington overall. But, you know, it's pretty close. I mean, you know, look, you you make have a movie that's set in Kansas. You film it in Wyoming. I'm not going to know. You know, people from Wyoming would know, maybe. (laughs) I don't know. But the vampires are making her food, which is adorable. They're watching little cooking shows, trying to make her Italiano because her name is Bella. And so they're just culturally stereotyping her. And we're like, she probably likes Italian food. But to be fair, a lot of people like Italian food. I would have. What they're cooking sounds delicious. I am painfully Irish and I would eat the fuck out of an Italian salad. Sounds great. And they are, yeah, they're adorable, like trying to cook 
for her and they're really excited to have a human over super cute and Rosalie she's not having it she's not uh, happy that like they're bringing a human in because that's a dangerous situation also Rosalie is just really grumpy throughout most of this movie she has not committed to non-sparkle motion yeah some of Bella. the fun things about this house is that they have this like really cool abstract construction of all of their graduation caps on the so walls strange. and inside private joke of how often they've matriculated which just sounds fucking miserable it's like another reminder that these guys just keep enrolling in high school for the rest of time which why go up to edward's room he has all of the music she wants to dance or he wants to dance she's like i'm not into that i'm not scared of you either oh you shouldn't have said that and we get the the fucking line that kills me every single time grabs her puts her on his back jumps out the window onto a tree and just looks around back at her and says you better hold on little spider monkey you better hold on tight spider monkey what his room though is like a dtf fuck pad it is except (laughs) for the fact that he doesn't have a bed he just has a mid-century bauman style chaise lounge Mm -hmm. so it's not very conducive to sex because it's narrow and it has weird curvature in it and so Bella notices she's like you don't have a bed and he's like I don't sleep and she's like yeah but where are we gonna fuck and he's (laughs) like well I don't want to do that either because I want to wait until marriage because I was written by a Mormon it's like okay fine he doesn't say that in the movie does he that's that's the implication okay it's the the implication because of the implication implication. and his pad here it is super alluring and sexy because it has the antique record player and Mm. just all of these records it's a very millennial hipster seducing pad because he's got everything on vinyl and old victrolas and everything is very well lit starts playing claire de lune she recognizes it oh you recognize claire de lune (laughs) oh yeah or whatever doing the deep cuts i see there yeah They jump out the window. Better hold on tight, spider monkey. This is one of the CGI moments in the film. Not the jump. They're actually on cable wires to swing from the base of that to the tree. But the tree was a little bit too far away. So they ended up CGIing the tree closer to the house. Uh, Okay, that's fair. So that's a fun little thing. And then, yeah, he takes her on a journey, a wild, fantastic ride of cable wires scurrying up the tree lines. They get up into a specific top of a pine tree that looks very high up. Once again, this is practical. They brought two stunt double people up into the top of this tree and strapped them in to get the 360 shot in the helicopter. And apparently this was a super terrifying moment for these stunt people because Mm -hmm. the helicopter's wind force was so strong combined with the wind that was already out the day that they were convinced they were just going to go flying out of this tree. But it is a practical shot. Other things that are important, I suppose. Let's see. Stephanie Meyer has a cameo. She's in the diner. She's writing Breaking Dawn. She is named. She gets named, too, because someone, a a waitress comes up and says, Here's your veggie plate, Steffi. And Steffi Myers just kind of smiles like, oh, yeah, thanks, thanks, nice, thanks. Let me get back to work in this book because I'm a writer. Yeah. Yeah. And then at some point, he's going to, Edward's going to take her out on a proper date where he'll meet her dad first. And then like any proper first date, he takes her to play baseball with his family. We get one of the very few intentional, intentionally humorous moments where Bella tells her dad, hey, I am I have a date with Edward Cullen. And for whatever reason, her dad is drinking some beers 
and cleaning a sawed-off shotgun. And there are shotgun shells on the table with him. Strange thing. And then Bella says that Edward wants to meet him. He's right outside. He is? Yeah, he wanted to meet you. Officially. All right. Bring him in. (laughs) And cocks the shotgun. Holy shit, Dad. And puts it back on the table. He's just like, I've, you know, finished cleaning it. But yeah, the quote-unquote humor of the shovel talk with the actual police sheriff, because her father is the sheriff of the town, cleaning his little gun while downing vitamin R, which is a local way of referring to the Rainier beer as your vitamin R. It's Uh a Pacific Northwest thing. And yeah, it is also just another either inadvertently or on purpose nod to the weird types of patriarchal discourse that are happening in this movie (laughs) where now we've got two people in Bella's life, both these men that think that they can control her dating life in some capacity because... Yeah, I was always fortunate enough that my father is enough of a decent human being and a feminist that he realizes who I date is none of his fucking business, right? (laughs) And so that has just, that was also not an experience I ever had growing up as the weird and posing father to who I brought home talk, because like, not his fucking place. (laughs) And yeah, so that's just like another thing that sticks out to me. It's like, oh, this poor girl is surrounded by men that are super protective of her and want to make decisions for her or protect her in some way that she hasn't asked for. We get to the centerpiece of the film. The reason this film was made vampire baseball. And it is, yeah, fucking insane. They can only do it during thunderstorms because when they hit the ball, it sounds like thunder going off. Though in all reality, you could just say like, Oh yeah, someone was shooting guns out there or whatever. Doesn't really matter. It's, fucking crazy. Alice is doing the most insane pitches of all time where she seems to be winding up, does a high kick, and then just does this like goofy overhanded throw that you know, if you were normally throwing a baseball, that would not work as a pitch very well, but Alice is a vampire so the thing flies to the air probably at like 200 miles an hour. They hit the ball, flies miles away, they have to run, grab it, jump to the air, And as insane as all of this is, what's so sad to me is that I've heard Catherine Hardwick talk about this, that she had to dial back what she wanted to do with the vampire baseball. At one point, Summit Entertainment, the production company behind this movie, they told her, you need to shave a million or so dollars off of this movie. We need to cut the budget down. And so she had the storyboards for everything she wanted to do with vampire baseball. And she said that she you know, marked off the the extreme shots, took out all the epic stuff that she wanted to do and had them come in, look at it. And she thought that they would say, oh, no, that stuff is too awesome. You can't lose that. Don't worry about trimming the budget. No, 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 no. Catherine Hardwick learned that day that what executives will do is look at the awesome things that you've cut and just say, yeah, that shaves a few million dollars off of this. Good job. Yeah, well, Alice, first of all, spent two weeks learning how to pitch a baseball. So how she pitches was actually approved by her pitching coach after two weeks of working with her. Fascinating. So I don't know how to pitch a baseball, but allegedly that is specifically how they trained it into her to do and filmed it in a specific way that everybody was really excited about the pitching the baseball shot. Even the high kicks? 
I don't know. I don't really know or do baseball. In fact, I find baseball to be the least sexiest sport possible. And that like includes curling because curling has its own appeal. You're not you're not wrong about baseball. Having watched a lot of baseball throughout my life off and on, I've never seen a pitcher in the major leagues or minor leagues for that matter pitch like Alice is pitching. But who who am I? I'm not an expert at the same time. So And so there's like this weird extra angle to the theater of the absurd that this hypersexual immortal family is just playing baseball <laughs> and they're all in their little baseball gear and I'm like this is hilariously not working on a sexual erotic level but it's working on a weird abstract theater of the absurd level because the fuck and so they are doing this scene that despite the low budget does still have some cool practical effects happening, especially once again, the cable wires are back, so much cable wires. The actors across the board in the scene all expressed in interviews how painful the cable wires were in this because your entire waiter just on these two nylon straps and you're just getting thrown about this baseball field and crashing into each other and trying to run really fast with the cable wires and yeah that none of them had fun with that but the things that were kind of cool little tricks that i liked on an effects level the sliding into the bases got composited kind of plate composited it in and how they did those is they actually set up some glycerin and a couple of other material slip and slides that they had the actors just run and do the slip and slide down so that they would be going at the right speed as they slid into the bases and then they yeah composited them onto the baseball field They also, the entire time, were holding these clear balls that were the size of a baseball in their hands so that their grip would stay at the exact right opening width of the baseball so that the baseball could later be CGI'd in a fast pace capacity Uh, into their hands Mm -hmm. and that the hand would still then match the sort of circumference of the baseball. And so they were holding these clear balls the entire time. Then we get the entrance of our rebel vampires that have been teased throughout this movie so far. And we get it in one of my favorite types of practical effects in the biz, which is sometimes referred to as the magic carpet. Uh. So what happens? So when these guys come striding in to the scene, it looks like they are moving very fast but walking at the same time. (laughs) They're kind of gliding at a hyper-fast speed, and yet the frame rate doesn't really look like it's being disturbed at all. So how did they do this? Well, what you do is you get a very long piece of plexiglass that is fixed to a chain that is then kind of fixed to a wench, and mechanically, you start cranking in that long sheet of plexiglass at a fast speed as the actors continue to walk as if they're on a runway on this plexiglass. So it's kind of like those moving escalators at an airport where when you step on one of those and suddenly it feels like you're going super fast because you're walking and the walkway is moving forward at the same time. So it kind of doubles your speed. Same exact principle, except for you're actually recreating one of those mechanical moving skyway walkways out in the middle of an outdoor field by creating that long plexiglass and just pulling it along as they're walking. 
It's actually very tricky for an actor to get used to that movement. If you look off in the distance at all and you catch a glimpse of the fact that outside <laughs> of your peripheral vision, the world is not moving at the speed that you expect to, you will trip. So it's <laughs> kind of training your body to just keep focused on a certain way and just keep moving. But all of these three actors, they did their own magic carpet stunt and they had a lot of fun with it. And nice. it looks real cool. It looks awesome. I love how weird and otherworldly it looks. So good job, uh, other rebel vampires. Yeah, they show up, they want to play baseball, and there's like this whole animalistic thing that happens because James, who I also associate with the OC because he becomes a big character on the OC. Oh, does he? Gets okay. a sniff, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of OC people inadvertently involved with this, but he gets a sniff of... Bella and I guess her strawberry scented human hair <laughs> and he gets really excited because he's like you brought a snack yeah. and then they all crouch down and they hiss each other like they're jungle animals ready to pounce and that sets off our final pen ultimate like few scenes here because James he's a tracker and he saw Edward's possessive reaction to Bella and he's like all right I have a new game and I must hunt this bitch down and destroy her life for fun. He really, really gets off on hunting. Yeah, we all have our things. Yeah, the fact that Edward is going to make it really difficult for him to hunt Bella, that's just even more enticing, man. Yeah, so it's the, it's the <laughs> taboo of the hunt, whatever. And so he starts the track. We have a whole little kind of ensuing danger scene where the family bonds together to try to get Bella to safety. One of the most heartbreaking moments of once again, pure human emotion in the book is when she has to go off and tell her dad this like really awkward, terrible stuff about like how she doesn't want to live in Forks anymore and that she's got to get out or else she'll be stuck there like her mom almost was. Yeah. It's like brutal chick. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I feel for this guy. I don't know. I'm feeling for the dad. Oh, the it just feels dad. so sad. And she bounces and eventually ends up back in Phoenix at her old ballet studio for this showdown with Hunter James. More cable wires are involved. Some cutaway, easily breakable floor materials with a trench dug underneath them um, are oh. involved for the practical effects of them getting swung down and thrown mm. into the boards. Like stuntmen are doing a great job with that. That was another practical effect that they just smashed somebody into a line of breakable boards, nice. which are still technically wood, even yeah. though they've been scored to break. You're still feeling that. Yeah, Stuntman got a concussion from that, but he was back at work the next day, apparently, being like, this is my job, this is what I do. I like, all right, do what you love, I guess. Oof. They built the whole breakable glass and the breakaway brick for the other vampires to smash in through the walls. So it's a whole practical build. Mm -hmm. They fight it out. This is apparently the first scene that they actually had to film because the actor who plays... James, he only had a limited few days that he could work on this. Ah. So they filmed all of his scenes first. Mm -hmm. And so this is pretty much Kristen Stewart's first day on set is pretending to die. Oh, nice. Having like all of these bonds with the people that she hadn't actually met yet really at past rehearsals. She gets bit by James. She's writhing around. She's going in and out of her ability to focus on what's happening around her as little Edward Cullen. He's losing his shit because he shows up and she's bleeding and she's dying. And, she's and been he's bit. just feeling all of the stuff. He's got to make a decision. Is he going to let her turn into a vampire? Is he going to suck the venom out of her? And if he chooses to suck the venom out of her, can he stop in time before her heart totally stops because he's drained it of all of her life essence, bodily fluids? Because he's just his own personal brand of heroin, you know? Like, he just can't stop once he's had that taste. And he's got this great, crazy face while he's trying to stop drinking from her <laughs> veins. 
It's a face. Wake up in the hospital. Yep. Wakes Ugh, up in the hospital. Mom's there. Mom says, oh, yeah, you, you. they told me you had an accident. You fell down some stairs and you fell through a window. You lost a lot of blood. She's like, yeah, that sounds like me because as we've established the entire narrative, I'm clumsy as fuck. I fall downstairs and out windows all the time. Yeah. No big deal. Well, my mom says, oh, it's, it's great because my minor league baseball playing uh, husband, he totally got signed to a team in Jacksonville so he can come down to Florida with us. And Bella says, fuck that. No, I do not want to move to Florida. I want to stay in Washington. In Forks. Florida's sunny, and so my high school boyfriend, he can't move there with me. Yeah, that's no good. So mom says, well, okay then. Fuck, was not expecting that answer from you, but okay. Edward, who is pretending to sleep, mom goes, he talks to Bella and says, uh, you know, you should. I, we, we shouldn't be together. And this pisses Bella off in a big way. We're just like, what? Fuck no, man. We can't be apart. We have to be together. It's, yeah, some emotions. She's like, I have known you for two months, and I am irrevocably in love with you. Never going to change my mind, you know, because no 16, 17-year-old girl has ever felt like they have found the love of their life that they never want to leave and then change their mind on that. It's all good. They go to prom. We get another one of those kind of patriarchal moments when as she's heading out of the house dressed up, her dad says, "Uh, you still have some of that bear mace I gave you? Okay, good. Yeah, and Edward being like, I'll take good care of her. And he's like, I've heard that before. And they're like, haha, because last time you said that, she ended up with a broken leg, falling out of a window. And dad doesn't even know about the almost vampire, almost dying component part of it. But, you know, whatever. Oh, if anything, his concerns are pretty justified. It is, but it's like this weird exchange of like, I'll take care of her. Like, yeah, I don't know if you can get a thing. And Bella just standing there like, I mean, I could maybe take care of myself. Guys, I'm a person. I I exist. She looks pretty in a blue dress and has a broken leg, right? Like, that's that's her vibes. That's her role here. It's fine. She gets to prom. Jacob shows up. And I kind of wish they had done this like they did in the book. In the movie, Jacob shows up before they even go into the dance and says, Hey, yeah, my, my dad says you should totally break up with, uh, with Edward because he's bad news and we're going to be watching you. In the book, Edward and Bella are already inside the dance and Jacob comes up and says, Hey, can I cut in? You have this moment of Edward saying, uh, yeah, fine. Has to like just glower at Jacob as him and Bella are dancing. I thought that. Ah. That just seems like it would be way cooler to watch, but I don't know. They changed it up for this. See, I liked this version because I like that in the first movie, I think that's another reason why I like this first movie and I don't like the rest of them, is that Jacob's pretty chill at this. Mm -hmm. He seems interested in getting to know Bella again. He seems to kind of like her in that, oh, I remember really enjoying making mud pies with you back when we were kids. But he shows up at this prom. He's like, uh, yeah, I got paid to be here to just tell you to break up with your boyfriend. Sorry, I know that's super awkward, right? And so he's not really that invested. He's not in a love triangle at this point. He's no. just, he acknowledges Edward as her boyfriend. And then she's like, okay, make sure they pay up. And he's like, okay, roger that. And then he leaves. And I'm like, can't really hate Jacob in this because like he's super chill. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not causing any problems because that's the thing about the books and the weirdness of the team Edward team Jacob thing is that it's technically this will devolve into a love triangle. And yet at the same time, it's never really a question for Bella. Like she sees Edward. She falls in love with him for whatever reason, decides she wants to become a vampire ASAP. Like 
she chooses him right from the bat and she doesn't really sway on that. Mm -hmm. And so then you've got this other guy that's just popping up and he's like, you should love me instead. Why don't you love me? So he inserts himself into this love triangle. He creates a triangle and she's constantly telling him like, I'm just not that into you that way, bro. And so it becomes incredibly weird and toxic and hard to just put up with where it's like, you're going to have to accept that she doesn't want to do you and move on. And then we learn later the creepy reason why he can't move on is because he's bonded to her ovaries or something. They're weird books. It's weird movies. really weird and gross and like Doris Lessing style in the fourth book. But it's, yeah, it's just like it's an, a weird love triangle and it also kind of adds to that discussion what a lot of people find uncomfortable about this narrative about teenage female agency that when men in books and movies and often real life too like a woman there's this expectation that the woman then must respond in a certain way Mm. like she can't just be like fuck off bro (laughs) right it's like (laughs) i like you and so you owe me something for liking you Mm -hmm. and that is a narrative that's just very palpable in the twilight series and for some people they find that hot because that's their thing in which case like not trying to take that away from you but it's also a fair criticism for people who don't find that hot. Like that becomes real gross real quick. Yeah, it's true. But they go to prom and they dance. It's all worth it because after Edward comes back to, you know, take Bella away, he says, I leave you alone for a minute and the wolves descend. Ah, uh huh. You see what he he knows. He knows what she doesn't know, which Uh. is there be werewolves (laughs) out there in them woods. They go in, they dance inside so fucking briefly, and then immediately go outside, which is weird to me because Edward says, you need to come to prom. I want you to have human experiences. They're in prom inside for like 15 seconds before Edward says, do you want to get out of here? Let's go outside. They go outside, they slow dance, and Bella says, just fucking do, make me a vampire. I want to do this thing. Come on. Edward doesn't want like, no, I don't want to take your life away from you. I want you to be able to have a human life. I didn't have that choice. Blah, 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 blah. It's, I mean, really when you know where these movies are going and you know where the books are going, this whole thing about Edward not wanting to take her life away from her is such, it's an empty thing because when Bella finally does become a vampire, it's like she thinks it's the best thing ever. Her life is improved beyond measure by being a vampire much later in the series. So... Yeah. Yeah, but she only becomes a vampire later in the series under duress, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. like she's going to die or she can become undead because she's otherwise given up her life for this, like, grotesque monstrosity of a child that's growing inside her. Because here's another weird little sort of religious undertone to this for subconscious or conscious reasons like this is not a pro-choice narrative across the board right like this is not the woman's right to choose what happens to her body and so we've got edward who's like no you can't choose this for yourself you can't choose to die and come back as undead right like it's only in times of absolute distress and turmoil that will maybe choose to turn you into a monster instead so that like termination is not her choice that's just, that's just the way Edward sees the world, you know? Uh, yeah. Then he's like, isn't it enough to just live a long, healthy, natural human life with me 
by your side. What? Uh, and it's like, okay, let's think about the dynamics of Work this. at the logistics of that. Uh, Does he really want to, like, fuck her when she's, like, 87? Because I really want to know. Like, I'd be interested in that answer. Because maybe he just loves her for her and he loves her soul, her unremarkable, average, clumsy soul with the mind that he cannot read or know what's going on there. And he's just going to be invested in that as her body begins to age and then decay. Because that's like Bella's perspective is, dude, I'm already dying. I'm dying right now. Every moment that yeah. I continue to live, we learned about cellular mitosis. Like my cells, <laughs> they are rapidly decaying. And uh, at some point, you're going to be frozen at 17. And then you want to talk about shit looking weird once again, the psychology of the population, they don't care about our age difference if we're both in matching bodies. But if I'm in an 87-year-old body, even if you're still 100 years older than me, people are not going to be cool with me being in an adult women's body continuing to fuck a 17-year-old who's apparently enrolled in high school. Because in the eyes of the law, like, that's actually real legal. That is some statutory rape situation. So maybe we should try to counteract and prevent that. He's like, nah, though, like, I want you to have the human experience that I never got to have. It's like, okay, whatever. Whatever. And she's like, and I want the vampire experience that I've so far never gotten to have. And they're not going to come to an agreement point on this. So she's just going to have to step on his feet and dance with him leading to an Iron and Wine song, which is actually a great Iron and Wine song. I really do like Iron and Wine. The soundtrack to this is, once again, it's fantastic. Also, Victoria's there, that redheaded rebel vampire from earlier. Yeah, she's kind of out for semi-vengeance because they totally killed James. They beheaded that mofo and pushed yep. him some fire. So, And she kind of liked James, you know? Yeah, didn't. Laurent hopefully makes an appearance again later because he's fantastic. He is awesome. Yeah, it's true. And that's Twilight, the movie that we have told you in the past that we are all about. And I hope that we made a case for it today. I mean, yeah, I don't know if we fully made the case for it, other than it is tonally super interesting. It has its own mood. It has its own style. And that style is embracing what has even Catherine Hardwork herself has labeled this film as the imp of perversity <laughs> core ethos. It's just a bunch of awkward people compelled to do even more awkward things. Yeah. And we get to watch that unfold. And in the process... This movie encapsulates something about the problematic, patriarchal, power dynamic clusterfuck that is teen paranormal romances, and or just teen angst in general. It's fascinating. Catherine Hardwick so. would not be... I don't really know if she decided to not do the sequels or was not asked to do the sequels or... What the story? I've heard some conflicting things. Um, some have said that she had a... Just kind of a timing conflict. Others seem to indicate that people were not as much of a fan of this theater of the absurd approach, right? They wanted mm -hmm. a little bit more of the pure sexual psychopath. They wanted a little bit more of the Fifty Shades of Grey instead of Boring. like the teen noir. So this is the only movie in the franchise that is going to feel like this. And thus, it is the only movie in the franchise worth watching. From the interviews I listened to, I don't really know. She didn't say anything in these interviews I listened to about like why she did not come back. But she did say that because this was a movie that Summit Entertainment, they didn't really have much faith in or think very much of. Aside from telling her you need to trim the budget back a little bit, creatively, she had free reign with this movie. She could do whatever she wanted to. It was like making an independent film. She says, like, this was... 
not at all like making a studio film. A studio film, you always have executives talking to you and saying like, you need to do this and you change that, make this more marketable, blah, 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 blah. She never had any of that. Only interference she ever got was just trim the budget a little bit. But after I could see like, now that that's just all that she has said. This is just me, my own conjecture. I think that after this movie became the success that it was and they realized they had a hot franchise on her, on their hands, I could see the executives from Summit saying, okay, we can't, any more of this crazy, yeah, theater of the absurd bullshit. We need to make sure this is, uh, you know, mass marketable, will appeal to as many people as possible. And that could be why they changed things up so much because, yeah, the later sequels just do not have the same magic. Yeah. So speaking of that magic, shall we top five it? I'll top out on my five so much. I don't really know what I meant by that, but I'm going with it. My honorable mention goes out to and I yeah I cannot pronounce this either the the indigenous tribe that became a part of these books and these movies and this first movie first book just they are there they are present uh, it seems like a little bit of their folklore is twisted somewhat for the purposes of this and it is strange to me that Stephanie Myers chose to use a real indigenous tribe for the sake of this movie and then also add all that really problematic shit in the later books. So, you know, shout out to them. I know that they are, they have good like efforts going for their tribe these days online that you can donate to, you can check them out. So props to them for, I don't know, props to them. Is that the right word? But just, I feel sorry. I feel bad. I feel bad that a real group of people were kind of pulled into the really weird aspects of this franchise. My honorable mention goes to the Pacific Northwest. All right. That's an amazing area, great area to film stuff and just love the atmosphere that mm-hmm. that's providing. But I also agree with you on the yeah. values as well. For sure. What is your number five? My number five is kind of the writing team here, by which I mean Steph Myers for her book, which, like I said, there I, I get it. I get why this book was the success that it was. And to Melissa Rosenberg, the screenwriter for this movie, for dialing things back a little bit where they needed to be dialed back and making Edward and Bella not horrible people like they are in the book. You're number five. My number five goes to National Treasure Mike Newton. Okay. God, that guy <laughs> oh, like, nailed every single fucking moment that he was on screen. He was not in this enough. I love that dude. Also, Anna Kendrick probably tying with him. Similarly, did not get enough screen time, but every mm-hmm. second she was on the screen shined. Like, they just nailed something about the awkward, just average teen stuff. Uh, I mean, that's my number four is our supporting high school players. Both Mike, Jessica, Eric, Angela, all like those kids, the, that that team of four, like they become couples by the end of the film. Uh, they are such cookie cutter characters in the book. They have almost no personality whatsoever. So everything that we love about them, it is like, yeah, props to all the actors. They brought so much into those uh, very stale characters from the book. So they're awesome. You're number four. My number four goes to the Hoke house. Holy uh, shit. Beautiful house. Beautiful that, place. Yeah. It was necessary for adding part of what makes this film just spectacular to stylistically watch. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, is that house pretty. I feel that. This is your number three. My number three is a tie of R. Pat and K. Stew, our vampire-human couple. Again, very charismatic actors bringing a lot to this that was not present in the book and just doing wonderful stuff. And yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy with these two. They're great. Yeah, my number three is also K. Stew and Rob Pat, as it were, that... 
they are different people than their characters, and I've seen them give multiple variations of performance. So everything they're doing in this, it is a choice. Uh-huh. <laughs> like yeah. They're making choices. And so where I've said before that you could tell Robert Pattinson's acting career was going to blossom even from Twilight. And it's really because this like teen vomit, weird, self-loathing, like strange avant-garde clusterfuck, it is weird to watch. And in some places, like it, it seems like you could try to embrace it from the ironic, oh my God, hilarious perspective but it also it's working for the tone that this movie is setting like these are choices these are excellent choices that are being made yes who's your number two my number two is elliot davis the cinematographer for this though i guess really this can just go out to anyone who is responsible for the visual style in this film because again it's what i love so much elliot davis had worked with Catherine hardwick for like on her two previous films both lords of dogtown and i believe 13 so they were jiving. It was magic. The camera work in this movie, I fucking love. As we've said, it's crazy. Cameras zooming around, circling, jumping around with people. It's handheld when it needs to be. The lighting is wild. The colors are crazy. Yeah. You're number two. I'm realizing that I have two unrelated number twos because my list actually has six. That's how but, you do, isn't it? Yeah, with so my two, two number twos, twos, one actually is the cinematography and this visual style. Doing have to our... agree with all the things. Yep. None of the other films are going to be even filtered oh, in God, this no. way. Yeah. And they are, yeah, greatly at a loss for them. So Twilight is a distinct style. The other goes out to Alexandra Stavis, the music supervisor. Oh, right on, yeah. Great music choices that mm-hmm. are being made on this capture the vibe. There's a little bit of some 2000 emo like going on in some of the soundtrack as well, which isn't necessarily my favorite style of music, but definitely captures the ethos and the era that this film was made in. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah, great music selections across the board. And I'm assuming we have the same number one. I think so our this number is one an is an inarguable situation, I guess, with Twilight. One of our little uphill climbs that we often have here. This was an easy uphill climb because our number one, I'm sure, is that delightful Southern Texas Belle, Catherine Hardwick. Goddamn, Catherine Hardwick. I was so happy to learn more about her and everything that she did for this film to elevate the book. What can you compare this movie to? You can't compare this movie to many other things because Catherine Hardwick brought so many wild aspects to this film. And yeah, fucking A. Yeah, Catherine Hardwick, she understands that perverse imp. (laughs) (laughs) And she made a movie that was basically like the ode to the perverse imp. The imp of perversity. An ode to the imp of perversity. That is the alternative title to this movie. I fucking love it. You never realize how much she brings to a film until she goes away and we get the others. I mean, I defy anyone to watch this film. If you've never seen this film before, I defy you to watch this film and then tell me you were bored later on. It's impossible. No one can watch this film and say that they were bored. I'm. If you don't like it or you think it's crazy, that's an understandable reaction. That's just like your take on it. But you no way can you look away from the screen at any point and say, oh, I, uh, yeah, ugh, boring, I don't really care, Wh- whatever. Like, no, no, you will be invested. No, that is true. Yeah, like, whether or not you like what's happening on screen, that's fair. There are a lot of people that do love cinema, that even love weird avant-garde cinema that might not like Twilight. If you can love the weird tapping into the imp of perversity and the theater absurd that's happening and watch it from that perspective, then 
awesome. Welcome to the club. If you can't, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It's fine. I understand just being like, ah, it's mediocre, whatever. But I do agree. Yeah, it's hard to say that there's a moment that's visually uninteresting or that doesn't have something happening. It's a fun little film. And as we say for it out here. Yes. Yeah. This is a vampire story. Of sorts. Uh-huh. Vampire, demon, imp of perversity. And so. yeah, this film is just going to try to latch onto your soul. And you know what? I'm just going to have to let it happen and consent. <laughs> Safe word out. They call it creeping. I said loving. It's the only way for me. Bill and I'll pay for signing waivers. But I said outside is reaching. I name your mother your father and the first pet that you keep i know your favorite place to die at when your check comes in each week i know you do your wash on sundays and you separate your whites and let your car needs a new tire cause last week i laid those spikes i've got a million polaroids with all the dates pen in red Just don't know it yet, but you love me and I love you the same One day we'll have a pretty wedding and I'll be your everything We'll be together, yes, forever We will never, ever part Oh, you don't know it yet, but baby, I've already got your heart Some call it stalking, I say walking Just extremely close behind I'm sure if I sat down and asked you And I've got eyes to watch you sleep I bought a packed lunch and some coffee For my snake out in your tree Outside your house It's gonna be as quiet as a mouse Or else you'll call the police And I'll get done for something stupid Like disturbance of the peace And piece by piece I am collecting All the things you leave behind And when you don't I rummage through your bins To see what I can find You just don't know it been corrupted by capitalism. Space!